looks like he's hit pretty bad. Damn that deep thought in the hell. What would you do in his place? He gave his word. Gave his word to a railroad. It's his word! That ain't what counts! It's who you give it to! <laughs> I'm Ernest Borgnine. Years ago, I discovered something exciting to do off the screen. I collect stamps. And U.S. commemoratives are a great way to get started. They're fun, they're history, they're America. I know that someday my kids will enjoy stamps as much as I do. Start your collection with the Talking Picture Stamp at your post office now. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. We're out of the gate. We're coming out 2017 with a bang uh, over Blake's mom's house this week. Yeah. You know, on the boat. Sleeping out in the basement. Down in the basement. It's fun. I had to come over here. It's cold out. Cold outside. It is chilly. It's getting chilly up here in the Northeast. Yeah. Um, welcome to a uh, 2017 edition. Our first... 2017 edition of yeah Saturday night movie sleepovers. Saturday night movie sleepover. sleepover. <laughs> you must excuse me, I'm a little sick. I got sick traveling, as we always are near death when you travel. It's, I, well, it's almost tradition for one of us to be sick during a John Carpenter. Oh, that's true because you were th- you were sick during the thing, and then uh, I might have been sick during when we did the, the various <laughs> Halloweens. Yeah, I have a cough though. I think you get sick. You, there's a 50 percent chance you get sick if you're on a plane. It's terrible. Yeah. It's disgusting. I got really lucky. I did a lot of traveling in 2016, and I got really lucky that I don't think I really got... I didn't get all that sick. That's great. I was expecting to. Like, yeah. I'll get sick just from going on the subway. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how I am. I'm usually really good, but I usually... Uh, so usually all bets are off, and then it was this year I got sick, you know. Um, good holiday season? You, you have fun? Yeah. Yeah. That was okay. Yeah. Can't complain. Came and went, you know. It was mm-hmm. nice. We, uh... Yeah, it was nice. Yeah. Good life day. Yeah, his life day was good. <laughs> then, oh, geez, in 2016 with so many people passing, it seemed like we had like an obituary page there for a little while. I know. It was like at the end, they're all trying <sighs> to get it under the wire. I know. It was terrible. Just so many people passing away. And then, you know, and then I completely forgot. We dropped the ball with, um, with, uh, what's her face? Uh, Carrie Fisher's mom. You know, we didn't make that reference in our Star Wars cast about her singing. That's why she's singing because of Debbie Reynolds, you know. Was a singer back in her day, wow. so so sad. So many people passing away, but I I, fe- I fear that we're gonna hit that now because they're getting to that age where you're gonna start having them going like not not in threes but like in like sixes or nines. <laughs> Yikes. You know, I mean, you look at it like but like you know Eastwood's in his mid eighties. You know, Chino De Niro or what seventy? You know, pushing seventy. You know, all the you think about all these people who are old. You know, yeah, older yeah. than us. It's like that that they're they're getting. You know, true. And then you, you know, or you know, Nicholson's. I think in his late seventies. So it's like, and then you know, they're a hack now. It's like, well, they're freaking in their eighties. They're you know, <laughs> give them a break. Yeah, Jesus, they're trying. You know, they got a whole uh, biography of work that they just, uh, you know, they're resting their laurels on. But um, yeah, it was good. I had a good Christmas too. I was in England. 
Uh, I will say, you and I talked about this some years ago, but I like uh, Christmas time. It's it's interesting that over here, you know, MTV has kind of moved away from the music video, and they went to like reality TV. Yeah. And England, they still have a bunch of music channels. MTV will have four or five channels, and I like the idea they play marathons of Christmas videos. So you, it's a, like a tradition where you just put the TV on like two or three days before Christmas, and you just have a marathon of like all these uh, Christmas music videos you'd completely forgotten and I thought that would catch on here if they did that but you know they need to get back into the music business yeah I don't know on our cable they have uh, like an MTV Classics which was formerly VH1 Classics they play music videos I'm trying to I wasn't here for it so I don't I didn't look but I mean just in general they play videos no well they do like blocks of videos it's a lot of uh, they'll play some of the old unplugged yeah that's cool stuff like that it's 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 some funny. of it. Some of it's just like the MTV non-music programming that they started in the nineties. Like oh some yeah, of the cartoons and stuff that they used to like do. Liquid TV and all that kind of <clears> stuff. <throat> I mean, even Weird Red and Stimpy was on uh, MTV for a minute. Like yeah. after, like I guess because it's owned by Viacom, which is also Nickelodeon. Viacom. That's uh, it's it's so odd. It's just the. Uh, I don't know, music video. It's it, you think that they went to reality show now, but then the reality show doesn't really date well. Like, you wouldn't really go back and watch if you were into whatever. You know what I mean? Like, go <laughs> yeah. back and watch, like, the real world. It's like, eh. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I guess you'd watch it for the novelty, but it's not like, you know, if you're going to go binge watching, like, yeah, yeah. whatever your old favorite, Quantum Leap. Yeah. You're not going to go back and watch. watch Survivor Season 2. Yeah, but I, I guess people do do that, which is weird. People own, you know, whoever, some people are into Survivor or The Bachelor or The Apprentice. I know they, for a while there, they used to sell them on DVDs, all those reality shows. Yeah, they so come out and they'd be like, them. yeah, and it, so it's like, once it becomes, like, you know, are people going to, like, get the Jersey Shore or growing up with the Gotties and, like, you know, watch, you know what I mean? Like, all that. Because it's all so dated now. You don't even know who those people are anymore. You're going to watch stuff from, like, the 2004 the Osbournes. Five, the Osbournes. That was a great show. I, we used to watch the Osbournes. So it's just, it's, it's, so all those, like, MTV 1234s, they're just going to have, like, just old, you know, I'd rather watch, like, Remote Control or the old, their old 80s programming, yeah. you know? What was the one? Bangers Ball. Like, play some, you know. Uh, what was the one with, it was, like, the dating show? Oh, singled out, singled out with Jenny Chris McCarthy and, and Chris McCarthy. Yeah. yeah, then she left, and then it was what's her face for a minute. Um, uh, uh, Carmen Electra. Yeah, right? Carmen Electra came replaced, but that was the thing. Her and uh, uh, Jenny McCarthy, like that, that with Chris Hardwick, and then he went and he left, and he did that dating show for a minute. He was doing like, um, remember that it was like it was in the mid two thousands. It was like. Uh, Oh, I forget the name of the date. It was a dating show, but it was like a blind. It maybe it was called Blind Date, and you they go on a blind date. It was actually pretty funny because they do pop up. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that was Chris Hardwick though. He did one of those because I used to watch. Because there was some other host. Maybe he. Maybe they replaced. So maybe at some point he did one that there was like a cruise ship one or something. But he did one of them, and I was like, oh, it's the dude from Singled Out because it was, yeah, it was yeah. before the Nerdist. So it was like yeah, 2005. Yeah. I remember Blind Day. We used to watch Blind Day. Was it Blind like Day? Yeah. Pop up things and like what they were thinking. Yeah, and those things are hilarious. And like you know, about to get awkward <laughs> in three, two, one. You know, and it's just so. I remember there was one episode where some guy went on a blind date, and he went on, and the blind date was with Tiffany. Oh, yeah, the Tiffany. Yeah, like, yeah. And I was like, huh. And that's back when she was still looking really good. And I was wow. like, that guy got lucky. <laughs> and he's like, he doesn't know her. He's like, who are you, Tiff? Do you have a last name? That's funny. Uh, but we're not talking about any of that today. No. Yeah, not But, at all. you know, there is, uh, I think that the movie we're talking about uh, visually inspired 
I, unfortunately, I don't remember the name of the song, but there was like a Duran Duran video that yeah. was kind of inspired by Escape from New York. And, oh, of course. And so, you know, that's a little bit of a weird segue. Yeah, it's yeah, a segue. <laughs> it, it introduced, I mean, like that 80s. I, I, I have a huge affinity for that 80s future noir, which you see in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the name. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. And it's, uh, you have a lot of fun there, you know, like with the, uh, you know, it's like it's like the 40s or 30s idea of the future of like you know by 2001 they're going to be flying in cars and yeah, you know well, robots yeah. in a house and they all look like Robbie the robot like should I make your tea sir <laughs> <laughs> you know? well yeah I mean there's basically Carpenter talks about it there's when you do like a futuristic sci-fi movie this you can really only go two ways you go like utopian everything's yeah. like great yeah. the way we think it's a time machine in the, the way we all want it to be and then there's the dystopian which is kind of all that post-apocalyptic stuff which i, I guess kind of came into fashion because of the success of mad max right yeah and mad that max ti- at that time and that was like what 78 79 yeah i would think that there around that time you had i wonder that'd be a good research project to see what was actually the kickoff of that you know because that I mean, they say we've been perplexed by this, but you know, what's his face talks about the Warriors was supposed to be post-apocalyptic, which I've never had any yeah. frame of reference on until they came out with that special edition. Yeah, and he said it. Walter Hill was like, "Hey, it's, it's the future. Be- it's in the future." <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, I don't think he needs to ex- ex- excuse or explain anything because those guys were really scary back in the day. No, but we had this discussion. I don't know if we and we may have talked about it on the Warrior cast, which we we did a epic. Yeah, podcast summer the summer podcast of the Warriors a couple years ago, <laughs> and I don't remember if we talked specifically about it, but we've had this discussion at, at the very least since that this is the New York and the Warriors is like the, in the same world as Escape from New York, but it's like what New York was like just before yeah the World War Three happened <laughs> and it got shut down and became a penitentiary. Yeah, I um uh I'm Dion Baya, you're Jay Blake. Um, Blake. We're here to, to, to talk about John Carpenter's uh, Escape from New York from 1981. John Carpenter, the patron saint of, of, of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. We're kicking in 2017. The, with the a, person most represented. Yeah. Except for, as you said in one podcast, was, there might last be... Last week, Santa Claus. It was uh, Burgess Meredith is a close second. But you also said that like there might be some like key grip or something that we don't know about. He's, <laughs> he's in every single movie. <laughs> We've never mentioned him. He's, he's a huge. Uh, he's got a. He's he's like a. Yeah, he's like a like Joe Spinelli. He's just signing in every day, and he's on every but, movie. Uh, yeah, we've done the thing. The thing. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Big Trouble in Little China. That's two. We did Halloween two. That he but he we was did a part Halloween's of. two and three, which he produced. Yeah, uh, uh, we, we did. Uh, in the Mouth of Madness? We did In the Mouth of Madness. What is that? That's like a baker's half dozen there. And then, uh, we, did we do something else? I feel like we did something like else. there's got to be at least one more in there. Uh, I mean, because we talked about doing all his stuff. Like, yeah. All, like, you know, there's tons of movies that we thought we've done because we've talked about doing it. Well, I mean, part of the reason why we're doing them right now, uh, I think one, you know, not not when the movie was made, but... It takes place in 1997, so we have a little bit of an anniversary there. Which is crazy, crazy because that's like in uh, a lot of stuff was going down in uh, in 1987, 1997, because that's when Terminator in 91 or 92 says like on August 29th, 1997, that you know the bombs go off. <laughs> yeah, so it's, all, it's like, all it's all intertwined. Yeah, and we and you and I graduated high school in 97, so we're like yeah. Jesus, shit's not going to get um you know any better after that. 
so I think that's you know I think that was one of the reasons why we're like yeah 1997 it's a little bit of an anniversary in that weird kind of way and then uh, Carpenter just had this huge resurgence yeah in, in 2016 you uh, you interviewed him for your book I interviewed him for my book shortly after that he which released, we like to say we you put the idea <laughs> in his head about he released an album yeah called Lost Themes and then the following year he released an album called Lost Themes Two. And uh, I don't know if he's still touring, but he toured all through the summer into the fall. Son of a bitch. I um, that. You saw him three times. I saw him three times, yeah. Yeah. And uh, You're just repeating everything I say. <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah, night yeah. for a wash. Nice night for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> Laundry tomorrow. Nothing clean. Right? Ain't nothing clean, right? Um, but, uh, yeah. So, I mean, in a, in a weird way, Carpenter's arguably kind of bigger now than he ever was. And it's weird because you think about... For me, I, I feel like he's kind of lost his gravitas as like a filmmaker because he hasn't. I guess it doesn't matter if you've had a hit, but it seems like you know certainly in the eighties and nineties they were giving him like a list projects, and then when you kind of hit maybe two thousand one two, you know after Vampires or Ghost of Mars, you know he he hasn't chosen to really do anything, and the stuff he's done hasn't been, in my personal opinion, up to like as yeah. good as his older stuff, which yeah. is not a. You know, you can only for a certain amount of time. It's like with anybody, he kind of well, pitters out. You know, he had he had a lot of success with Halloween and Escape from New York. Well, that's another thing, too, in the later years we should bring up that he's also been making a lot of money in residuals because you had reboots of Halloween with Rob Zombie. You had the reboot of The Thing, first in video game form, and then yeah. in that remake in 2009. Although I don't know if he gets a piece of any of that, because that was a universal movie, and he didn't write the script. Oh, that's true. He was a gun for hire for but that. I thought he but they, re- they remade The Fog. Yeah. Uh, they oh, remade Assault of Precinct 13. Yeah. Um, the Halloweens, like you said. So, I mean... Yeah, I mean, certainly made money that way. Of course, uh, his his music has been reissued many times throughout the 2000s on extended CDs editions. Now, in uh, uh, a lot of LPs, vinyl LPs, they getting did, re-released of his music. They did limited run comic books of Big Trouble Little China and even Escape from New York. And now, right now, there's uh, Jack Burton and snake pliskin comic oh gee that's awesome <laughs> there was but even before the more recent uh escape from new york comic which was the last two years or so yeah there was even before that there was a snake pliskin comic yeah there was like a because i have a uh like an mgm edition of of this movie that came out in 2000 or 2001 and it came it's like a two disc set and it comes with like a small comic size yeah. in there of it. I don't think it's the whole thing. It's like issue one. I have so the I first like of issue of that. It was like the Snake Plissken Chronicles or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I have the first issue of that autographed by the artist and the the writer. Um, so, I, you know, obviously I think he gets, he must get a cut of that. He owns those, I mean, he created those characters. But then in recent years, he and his wife, Sandy King, who's also his producer for his movies, they've been doing a lot of comic books. They've yeah. got like John Carpenter's Asylum. Is oh, like, okay. And, uh, they have a couple of comic book series that he's actually like involved with, like yeah. actively involved with, instead of just based on properties that he created. Uh, so, I mean, he keeps busy. And he's still been putting movies out. He did The Ward, and then he did that the short that I like, that Cigarette Burns from the Masters of Horror. Oh, yeah, he Horror. did two episodes of Masters of Horror. With the other guy now who people know, Norman Reedus from Walking Dead, who's in that episode of... Yeah. Um, and in 2005 or so, they were there was talk about doing a... Uh, 
a, uh, an Escape from New York, a Snake Plissken animated movie. Yeah, that was. And I remember like when a, they announced that a trailer. It, it or was something. exciting because it was like, oh, that'd be really neat, and Russell was going to do the voice. I mean, how cool would that have been? That would have been so. I mean, they could still technically do it. I mean, they can. Yeah. Whatever they, you know, nowadays it seems like it'd be a little more easier, maybe even than ten years ago. I mean, and then they went. They, they there was been a talk since at least two thousand seven or eight that they were going to reboot the movie. With Gerard Butler, there's been and a lot of talks. Tons of people, even like last year, they're still making announcements. Like something like yeah, Emily Blunt, maybe even being Snake Plissken. Like they're gonna like 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 flip the script and have it be like a female, you know, or, or then <laughs> yeah, not yeah. be ha, not have it be a reboot, it be a prequel, yeah, or how we get Gerard know. Butler. They're talking Jeremy Renner for a while yeah, in 2010 ish. Right now, I think they're active. They are like finally, I think, working on a script for it. Um. And they're talking about kind of doing with it like what they did with the escape with the Planet of the Apes movies, which is kind of reboot it from a different point and maybe have Pliskin at a different point before escape before New York happened. It'd be interesting because uh, you know I remember watching this oh, I don't know a while ago with my wife, and she said to me, "I would love to see what led him." From being, you know, because it's like the Rambo story. It's yeah, like he's yeah. the he's a soldier for the you know a patriotic soldier for your country, and then you turn for whatever reason, and then you end up being, you know, you're a soldier of fortune, or you end up being a criminal or an outlaw or a badass. So it'd be yeah. interesting to see if they do a prequel. What led him to be so like you know disenchanted uh, with the world or with his country? Yeah. But you could kind of see why, because to me. Like you're saying, this lives in the world of the Warriors. For me, this completely also lives in the world like RoboCop. Yeah. Like, you know, you could see like old Detroit, you know, uh, that how cynical that world is and how like everybody in that world is morally corrupt. It's just like, well, that's happening in middle America and out east, you know, New York's a prison now, you know. There uh, was also at some point there was a video game being made. Well, they did one uh, back in the day, like on like the like one of the systems, like the Atari yeah, like, or, no, well, or Commodore sixty. No, there was one I think for PlayStation Two well, that I was, was under one, development. Like, or, there like, might have been as well, but there was one that was. Uh, they were trying to develop a game, and you can find like on YouTube and stuff, like samples of the gameplay. Maybe we can post it. Yeah, uh, as an extra on the website, uh, and it was my understanding that that was. You were going to have a lot of stuff that led up to Escape from New York. It was like a Pliskin game, and you might have learned a lot of that backstory. So you think if you were to, in that game in like fifteen years ago, if you would have gave me like what property they would have developed into a game, the thing or Escape from New York, I would say Escape from New York. Yeah, yeah. You know, and still, it seems like it's such a like they were gonna they were I don't know six or seven years ago they were thinking about doing a Dirty Harry thing, and that didn't you know they they did well, the animation of that. It's funny because there are just certain properties that would make amazing video games. Yeah, they really always, lend themselves. I always said, like, Dawn of the Dead, would, which I think there is now, like, a zombie mall game that yeah. came out, like, a number of years ago. But, like, Dawn of the Dead is, like, you gotta run around the mall. Oh, the Monroe <laughs> Mall, and, you know, yeah, you gotta you collect, to collect yeah, things yeah. from each store. Yeah, every store is accessible <laughs> if you can get the key. It becomes like Zelda yeah. or Simon's Quest where <laughs> you have to go talk New- to somebody. <clears throat> and Escape from New York is, like, the perfect video game. Yeah, especially when you have those worlds where you can live within the world. If you're able to, like, make it like a Grand Theft Auto where you can have a completely yeah. completely interactive world like that time when in 2006 when you and I binged and did we beat the Warriors game when that came out I mean that was 
that was great. That amazing that game, yeah. you know. And then that Godfather well, that's game that came you out. You got to get from point A to point B. Yeah, you got like those are perfect. You have tasks to do, and then yeah, and, you, and there's a there's a timetable, especially with you know, like why wouldn't it be like instead of rebooting these and making them movies, you would think that they'd either come out as series anime, you know, you, why don't they do like limited run like they did that Spawn shit series in in the late nineties. The cartoon. Oh movie. yeah, that was a great show. You know, with what's his face? Um, uh, was it Keith David? Keith did the David voice? played the voice. Did the voice of Spawn? Like, do stuff like that. Do like a limited run of. You know, like I'm sure there's a lot of like Japanese anime that'd be be so sweet. But yeah, know? well, they keep dishing out those DC ones. It's yeah. a shame. Like he's not a comic book property for like Marvel or DC because then we probably would get like a, yeah, a proper like yeah, like, uh, like, you know DC like animated straight to video well they series. can call it something else like have a dc cinema or something and then yeah. have it be like they can you know because you know for a while like marvel owns gi joe marvel owns like transformers so you can do like i mean of course there's all kinds of them being reformed in the animated form yeah. but like stuff that they've made like indiana joe you know whatever came out as like a, a you know robocop they had a cartoon <laughs> but yeah you know uh, how cool would it be to like, do a serious reboot of robocop you know you know, those, there's so many movies. Predator, like there's so many movies out there. Yeah. I'm all, I'm, t- I'm doing movies all from '87. <laughs> that like, you know, that you can like. <laughs> there were so many great movies in 1987. Yeah, that were, could be great cartoons. Yeah, 30 year anniversaries that we'll probably you probably hear us talk about this year. Um, but getting back on topic, I can remember back in the day walking into like in the Northeast we had like Pathmark. You'd go into like Pathmark was a supermarket. You'd go in and like right to your immediate right by like the pharmacy. We, we've talked about this many times. There'd be yeah. like the little VHS aisle or like three, there'd be just three tiers of VHSs. And all it would be would just be like the, the uh, containers, you know, flattened or yeah. whatever. Or them big 80, 80s clamshell box style. And then you have to go up and get the tape. And I remember you, I'd be looking and I, you know, I don't know if my mom would like deposit me there and go do the shopping, which I can't really think that would be appropriate or she would just wait with Tie me. her leash off to yeah it, yeah to, she'd to leash me up to a thing you know i had one of them when i was little like, one of the uh, you know shelves yeah i like that sat mike meyer sat and i have skit where like i was i was getting too hyper one day so she tried to get me one of those leashes so she leashed me to her cart and then i'd run and then they would they would get taunt and then they would just move the car but then she realized that wouldn't work so she just i don't know what she did she just beat me and then she'd calm me down but i walk in and i go to the video store area and i'd look up and i remember like iconically I remember like Day of the Dead, that freaking cover scared the mm-hmm. shit out of me. That was like, you know, X-rated. You wouldn't even think about renting that. And you turn it over and you'd have like people getting their eyes gouged out or zombies, you know, that they're like blue and green walking around the steps. And you're like, oh. And this was another one that I escaped from New York, scared the shit out of me. You're like looking at like the Statue of Liberty, the, 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 the yeah, well, iconic the, poster. The original co- poster yeah, covers for the videos were awesome. It's like the video, you know, the, the, the Statue of Liberty's head's like in the middle of like, uh, you know, like a New York City street and they're running away in like one of those really iconic kind of like poses. And, and it scared the craps out of me. It's craps. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple craps. That's <laughs> yeah, how. I, I, I don't know what happened first. <laughs> if I peed and, 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 you know, shit myself or I shit myself and peed and then, you know, knocked myself out or whatever when I fell. But so it's like, you know, I remember how iconic that, and I remember seeing it this at a young age too. Like, I, yeah. I, I, it's always been with me. So it's not like a. Sometimes I can remember when I saw the movie for a first time, but when I get below a certain age, it all just mashes together, and it's like it's you know it's always been with me. Well, yeah, I think that's it's the this movie's that way for me too, and I think we might even in the previous John Carpenter related cast, I might have talked about John Carpenter was a director for me that 
In the Mouth of Madness was the movie that made me kind of fall in love with him. But it was one of those things where after I saw that and then I started researching John Carpenter, I realized that he directed all these movies that I loved and that, that, you know, were part of my childhood and my upbringing. And, you know, obviously, you know, Big Trouble in China was a big movie for us, our generation. Uh, but Escape from New York was definitely one of those two. That, I mean, that's certainly, uh, for me, like iconic John Carpenter movies. I didn't. I don't think, for some reason, I discovered Halloween until I got into horror. So there's there's certain horror movies I saw as a child that I that 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 I didn't make like like American Werewolf in London. I didn't watch for years because that scene where the family gets murdered scared the absolute shit out of me. Yeah. Or like you know, there's there's a bunch of Vincent Price movies or older horror movies or the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But there's certain movies I didn't see until much later. But Carpenter wise, it's like The Thing, Escape from New York. An assault on Precinct Thirteen, and since we're here, probably Christine. Yeah, Christine was big for me. When it's I was like you know, assault. I saw at a young age where I probably shouldn't have seen, and that whole that's another scene like like the scene with her with the ice cream truck scared the fucking shit out of me. The scene where like the cops are like, uh, you know, we can't get through. I wonder why. What's that noise? Is it raining out? And then like they go up and they look. That scared the shit out of me where they pan up and like the uh, telephone. Uh, uh, construction workers dead hanging from the telephone pole. <laughs> yeah. You know, that scared the shit. So, and then, like, and then, so Escape, like, like the thing scared the absolute piss out of me. And I remember watching that in, in, I guess, kindergarten, because I remember being at kindergarten the next day and looking up at the windows and saying, oh, there's the guy's name yeah. was Windows. Maybe these windows are going to turn into the thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, but like, it seems like you take a movie like Escape from, Th- uh, Escape from New York or Assault on Precinct 13. And it's weird because I guess they're Carpenter movies. They they are basically action movies. So we would take them and we would sort them in the action genre aisle of a video store. But because they're Carpenter movies, they have an inherent horror about them. They're, yeah. They become scary. Yeah. Which I think is really good because these could have just been straight genre pictures that might not have been good. They could have just been B movies starring, you know, all these, you know, actors. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, Carpenter, you know, his twitter handle is like master of horror i mean yeah. it's kind of known for horror and i've always said that i i personally like a lot of his horror stuff more than i more than i like the action stuff but i love the action stuff too but like the thing uh prince of darkness those all those movies are like i love those movies. see i like i like i like when the when the director steps out and does something that's different like you take scorsese and scorsese we comes to mind immediately is like gangster movies but i love his version of cape fear yeah. like i like when they would t- or i even like that other one uh shutter island people are like oh you know it's predictable you know the ending but i was like but it's cool it's like a genre yeah, yeah. thriller it's fun you know it's like you're something you'd watch on a saturday night like you know you know by a fire you know or something like that in the dark you know and i like it so it's like this kind of thing it's like you know he is a master of horror but i love when they step out not out of their comfort zone but do something else and then lend their style well, it's to funny it. because we think of them that way but uh Talking about just theatrical releases, I mean, Halloween was his first horror movie, and that was his third movie. Yeah. I mean, he did Dark Star was a science fiction movie. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a weird science fiction-like comedy. Uh, Assault the Precinct 13 is, yeah. like you said, kind of considered an action movie. I know you're right. I mean, you can't get away. There are certain motifs that Carpenter's known for, and like the Siege yeah, kind of like people trapped in an environment. Yeah, uh, is one of them, and the Salt Precinct Thirteen is kind of the start of that for him. And then, 
there were some TV movies, but then I mean, he Hol- did like he did an Elvis movie, which is hilarious. That he met, they did like, it was like a biopic for television. That's where they met. He yeah. met Kurt Russell. Well, there was a long time there. Carpenter discovered that you could make a good living just writing scripts that never get made. So yeah. there are a lot. He wrote a lot of scripts. He was a screenwriter basically through the majority of the seventies. And that's where this comes out. If he wrote this in like seventy three or seventy four, Escape from New York, and that didn't it didn't get made for what is that almost like six or seven years? Yeah, there's he says seventy three, seventy four. There's reports seventy six because they're saying it's like a comment on the Watergate. Watergate thing um but so it's funny because halloween was his first horror movie i should preface this that uh jay blake here is like an aficionado on john carpenter you've you've interviewed him a couple times for your book score to death you know a lot about him so it's always fun to do a carpenter movie because we get to pick your brain literally one of my five favorite filmmakers of all time one of my (laughs) two dozen favorite yeah, so you know, so it's fun to do these because it's like, I don't have to do a lot of research. I could just sit back and just <laughs> use you. But, as a, I mean, you're, I mean, you you know enough about Carpenter, too. Well, yeah, yeah, but it's fun. You know the And a lot of those movies we kind of revisited we together. together and I know. In love with. Yeah. It's funny, you know, you're talking about watching them when you're little. I was just at my brother's for the holidays, and... Uh, my nephew, his son, is seven, and so there's all this talk. Like, I'm going to scare the shit out. <laughs> well, no, but there's all this talk now, and we've talked about it before about like how kids are raised now and yeah. how it's different, and yada yada yada, and what you show the kids. And I was telling you before we started recording that the best part about being there this how how uh, this during the holiday season this year was that El Rey, the Rob Rodriguez channel, was having like a Godzilla marathon. Yeah. So I introduced my seven-year-old nephew to Godzilla movies, and he was so into that. And it's so great. And you think about he's seven, and it's like I remember I moved from where I was born in New Haven to the suburb Hamden when I was seven, and I remember that moving, like thinking I'm so old at seven. And you're not old at seven. I mean, obviously, because you're seven. (laughs) But it's like I think about how much when I got to that new house that I ended up growing up in until I went to college, like... That was already under my belt movie-wise. Yeah. So you think of a kid that age now, you know, your nephew's seven, and by that time, you and I, because, you know, you're my age, so we would have already seen, you know, like, uh, you know, like Escape from New York, The Thing, all these movies yeah, we're yeah. talking about, all these crazy, you know, so well, it's like, that's the, yeah, that's so you think about showing him these movies. That's kind of where I'm going, which is like my brother was telling me, they discovered on the Roku box, there's like a cartoon channel, so that you can, you know, an on-demand kind of thing. So... He was showing my nephew, like, the Looney Tunes cartoons for the first time. And he said that my nephew laughed so hard he couldn't breathe. That's interesting, because I I have a friend of mine that I work with, and he was saying that he showed his daughter the Looney Tunes cartoons, and she'd never seen them. And her response was... uh, why? Why are they? Why do they keep hitting? Each yeah. Other? Why well, are they so that's, his wife was like, "You should." You should my sister in law was like, "Should you be showing this? They're kind of violent." Yeah, they're chain smoking, <laughs> drinking, and all you know that. Like that. And uh, and he was. They were watching. <coughs> Excuse um, me. Of Christmas Vacation, the and, Chevy Chase movie. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, it's a, it's not a kids movie. No. I mean, there's some racy and there's some bad language and. You know, there's a little bit of th- all those movies. Suggestions. Yeah, and stuff it's more all, suggestive. Yeah. But she was like, oh, you some think he's language. So me and my brother were talking and we're talking about like all the stuff we watched that like you would never show a kid now. And he was like, he's like, you John Carpenter's The Thing. You want, we watched that. You watched that when you were little. I said, I remember watching John Carpenter's The Thing when I was little and recognizing that I had seen it before. Which means I watched it when I was even young. This is you saying this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, I remember being at my, my stepmom's mom's house. 
uh, and John Carpenter's The Thing was on, and my dad's like, my dad hates horror movies, but John Carpenter's The Things, he loves John Carpenter's The Things, so he put it on, and we were so watching. You say that in that movie, you're like, that's a good movie. <laughs> and yeah, and so watching it at then, and I was probably like six, seven, yeah. eight, maybe at the oldest, and knowing that I had seen it before. Yeah. So, you know, we grew up watching all that's kinds why I'm, of crap. I remember sitting in kindergarten, and that's what, 83, 84, looking out the windows at the kindergarten room. And it's like, that's, what are you, five in kindergarten? I don't know what, I don't know what age you are in kindergarten. So it's like, you think about, and it's so, is it basically like playing Russian roulette? Is it like with kids? I mean, I are the know. kids going to turn up? Like, would you... I mean, is that, I wouldn't say it's not, you wouldn't call it child abuse, but like if you were to just let your kid watch whatever he wanted nowadays, is that all right? Because back then I they kind of. I think people would, people would say no, but. You're right. People my, would say My no. point is always like, we turned out okay. But I wonder if there was a limit because I do remember like my dad, he wouldn't let me watch Scarface. I remember that. Yeah. Like that was things like you, you can't, you know, he wouldn't let me watch Godfather probably because he thought, you know, I'd have to wait till I was older to understand because it's talking. Yeah, yeah. And Scarface was, you know. I I don't want to call it gory, but like the scenes with the taint chainsaw in the bathtub sure, or whatever, yeah. and then the the cocaine snorting. <laughs> you want to fuck me, Tony? No, you know yeah, all that. Yeah. So, and then I remember notoriously, my father. We went to see RoboCop in the cinema, and he and we he ended up, the only time he ever used his parental judgment. He threw that car down was when they were blowing when what's his face, um, uh, Jose Ferrer. No, his Miguel Ferrer is blowing lines off the girl's tits, and he's yeah, like, yeah. "You do, old young face." <laughs> This is getting. This is taking a piss, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, so I, I, you want. There must have been because I wouldn't have seen Day of the Dead back then. There's some yeah. movies like horror movies say, you know, that you. Well, wouldn't, there's also just some movies you wouldn't have had access to. Yeah, that's know? true. So I wonder if you had like a like a on demand. Like I was I watched. My, like I was saying, to my brother, I was like, we, my dad, we went to the movies a lot. Yeah, and like my dad took us, and I don't know what your color of money is. But, I think it's 87 or 88. But still, it's like my dad took me and my brother to go see Color of Money. Which yeah. is not like, there's nothing hard, bad no, it's an in adult movie, movie. But it's not a kid's movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know me. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, so a lot of, I think a lot of our appreciation of cinema comes from the fact that there weren't guidelines, really. Yeah, what we were exposed to for whatever reason as a kid, you know. and then But we turned, like you said, we turned out fine, but I'm sure... Sadly, there might be people who haven't turned out fine. Now, interestingly enough, you know, like Escape from New York is a movie that shaped a lot of people. Like, for instance, Dave, our friend Dave, who uh, did the Silver Bullet cast with uh, for us with me last October, two thousand fifteen. Yeah, uh, two Halloweens ago. Um, Escape from New York was the movie that made him want to make movies. We know Dave from... We went to film school with Dave. Yeah. So Escape from New York was the movie that made him want to make movies. Got him and made him fall in love with cinema. Robert Rodriguez has talked all about how Escape from New York was the movie that made him want to make movies. There's a, a author I read uh, called William Gibson who did uh, Neuromancer, a very famous book that I only just discovered last year. And he kind of... He's the grandfather of, like cyberpunk and he kind of termed this, the... the, the term cyberspace was he coined it and very good book if you've never heard of it neuromancer amazing and uh he talks about how influential seeing carpenter's movie that book came out in 84 85 he saw carpenter's movie and he says that there's that like especially in sci-fi movies when you just do like one throw certain throwaway lines can be so good yeah. they don't need any expl- explanation and he says that line where lee van cleef says you flew the gold fire uh, over leningrad didn't you that's all you need to say. Yeah. And he's like, that line is fucking amazing because that just gives you, 
There's a yeah. whole other story it there. It says so much yeah. about you know, them that they, you know, and yeah, his history. So and- it's like, you know, it's like, the, the, and then another joke that my, me and my wife always have is the Ernie line in this movie. He's like, oh, wait till I tell Eddie. You know, it's like, who's Eddie? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know we wait till you, you know, wait till I tell your steak biscuit in my cab. Yeah. You know, so it's like, I love, and then, you know, we talk about in the first Halloween, you and I have the joke with, um, oh, with uh, the, the story the, with the, Donald Pleasance. Yeah, the grave guy the cemetery worker is like and then he gets an axe and he goes to the garage like, oh, you hurry up <laughs> <laughs> like, you never get to finish so it's always like that so it's like you're right when it's you know certain things will touch people and this movie seems like it came out at a time where you know um you know there was a lot of things going on politically in the 70s into the 80s there was a shift yeah, yeah. in power from you know it went from republican to democrat and then from democrat back to republican with reagan getting in so and it ushered in that bad eighties, yeah, well, dirty yeah, okay. New so, York. So let's say that you know, let's if we go there, and I think a lot of it just has to do with the inspiration, inspiring young people is that it's just fucking awesome. <laughs> it's know? a good action movie, you know. And, it's not really like an action. You and, know, you think about eighties, it's it's like a thriller. And there's also there's certain movies, and I, I do want to touch on get back to like putting it in perspective of when it was made. But I think one of the things. For me, anyway, movies that really inspire me to want to make movies are typically ones that are clearly done on a low budget because they almost seem accessible. Like you almost seem like you could do it. Mad Max is a movie like that for me. Are you the one who tells me that? What's your, is it you who has that line that like uh, uh, low budget necessitates uh, creativeness, or is that you? Oh, well, the, yeah, I talk about that a lot because I always I forget now who I talk to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I always talk about how like. Uh, uh, well, low budget restriction on art is in a way like the greatest thing for art because it makes you be more creative to solve think out problems of the yeah. and you have to think outside the box. I would argue that that's why like episodes one through three of the Star Wars series aren't as good as episodes four through six because like Lucas could do anything he wanted. Yeah. Whereas with four through six, he had to figure out how to problem solve and make things work. But... Um, and you could use that with any, you know, you talk about as, as early as Romero and yeah. Night of Living Dead. Any, anybody coming up being that filmmaker like Mean Streets. Oh, with sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah I'm any, just using that as yeah. an example because we see, yeah, a lot of people argue, and I would not necessarily be one of them that the movies are bad, but I would say like Martin Scorsese doesn't need to make three and a half hour movies. No. But no. the problem is like now he can. Because, yeah. So every movie is like over three That may hours. not necessarily be a good thing. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes it's not and sometimes it is. But, yeah. um, but for me personally, things like Mad Max, the Fulci movies, some of the Leone movies, like, you know. Uh, when he hits the spaghetti western. Yeah, style. especially yeah. – um, Fistful of Dollars, which isn't my favorite of the series, yeah. but it's a movie when you look at it, you're like, man, I want to make fucking It's a game changer at the time. Because yeah. it's like this, it looks like you might be able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this movie might touch on that for a lot of people. I mean, for a movie that they only had like five between million. five or seven million yeah. to do. I, I mean, mean, even an 80s dollars And it looks great and it still holds up in a lot of ways, but you can tell that it's not, doesn't have like that Hollywood polish. But it doesn't need it, you know? And, and I never, you know, watching the movie, it never occurred to me that like, you know, none of it was shot in New York, you yeah. know? It all looks because, you know, we'll get into it where they shot it. It's all, yeah. it all looks great. So it's it's weird where, 
you think of like sometimes you can even tell as a kid a movie's low budget. Oh, okay, you know. But like a movie like this, it never dawned on me that there was like a budget restriction because yeah, they used yeah. that. Even the miniature work, yeah. which is f- like the the old school like um, matte painting on glass or the miniature yeah. work is astounding. You know that it just holds up. Even now, it holds up. Yeah. You know, like a lot of that stuff, and it's probably because of the cleverness of how they did it or how they shot it. You know what I mean? And uh, it's always with me. It's like. Seeing the monster always kind of like, you know, it's I, I like what you don't see. Yeah. So I think if they, you know, if you show every, that's like with CGI in the 90s. It's like once you're able to do it, it's like, oh, that kind of looks stupid. Yeah. You know. But, Which is one of the reasons why, like, the thing is so brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Because it defies that rule. Yeah. It shows it to you right in your yeah. fucking face. But like, it's done in so. light. But it's so amazing. Yeah. It's like, it's. uh Normally, yes. And that's a big leave, gamble. Leave more to the imagination. But if you have somebody with the talent, and in this, in the case of The Thing, we're talking about Carpenter and Rob Bottin. Yeah. Uh, and Stan Winston, who did the dog effects and stuff in that movie. Kind of uncredited, almost. Um, when you have people with that talent, it you can swing for the fences. And it doesn't always work, but sometimes like you, you hit it out. Yeah. And The Thing is an example where... That they the the transformation from uh, American Wolf from London is another example. Yeah, and that's right around that same time. That's like the same year almost, if not um, around that time. 80, there was a lot 80, of yeah, lot of lot of people with uh, ambition yeah. <laughs> and, and really trying to. I mean, you got like the howl, howling the silver bullet around there. Like you have all that. Like it's it's like that early to mid 80s yeah. special effects practical effects were just really what Tom Savini was doing in Botines and yeah. Rick Baker it's just it's but amazing the, yeah normally I would agree with you but every but it's tough because then you get examples somebody can always throw like a thing in your face but like, well like fuck and, yeah. and there is a lot that you don't see in that movie too um, but in terms of well, I think practical effects always seem to lend themselves a little more realistic to a certain extent. Oh, totally. I mean, like, now, you know, in the old days, you know, like, if the old monster movies, you know, if they had just a piece of rubber on someone's face, it might look fake. But when you got into the 80s where they were using, like, Dick Smith's style of latex yeah. and prosthetics and, you know, and they were taking all that time, especially, like, you look at, like, Day of the Dead with Tom Savini, like, those zombie effects are amazing. The and Day of the Dead stuff is great. Yeah. You know, like, him, you know, that whole thing that he, like, his his, like... Uh, piece of the resistance in that movie is like when the guy gets up and his, his intestines fall out on the floor <laughs> that no yeah. one knew how he did that you know or ripping a guy apart you know on, on screen it's like you know prior to that I think his big accomplishment was blowing his head up or something you know yeah. and, and they, so it's like when you right before you hit CGI you got practical effects just were looking so good and then that's also translates into miniature work and you know with uh, practical stuff with like you know you see Blade Runner you know with the cars flying around or you see you know it's just it's it goes back to like we keep saying this lost art like that you know like that that Duncan Jones is that the guy's name who did uh David Bowie's son who did Moon right like they did a lot of practical effects for like the miniature work yeah and that stuff <clears throat> looked amazing because it was the guys who did Alien yeah you know and it's like you don't need CGI like for me my biggest thing is I used to like used to like how say James Cameron used CGI and Titanic, where it just furthers the story. Sure. For what you, you can't build a boat that's the size of the Empire State Building, so, so you have to, you know, CGI it. But when you make a monster and then it turns into like, you know, it was American Werewolf in <laughs> Paris was like that, say, you know, and it, it yeah. dates itself. When, you, when, it's, when the movie stops down to show you the effect, it's like, eh. 
But then you're right. Then there's movies like The Thing who that kind of, you know, put that on its end and say, no, you could still do it that way. But it kind of takes, like, the people that are at the top of their game. To it takes, it. like, the best to people in their field to accomplish that. Putting this movie in perspective, we talked about how Carpenter wrote it uh, 73, 74. There's some accounts 76. So let's just say early to mid-70s. At the time... New York was a shithole. Yeah. And I mean it was about to go bankrupt. There was a there was the you know there was a there was kind of a fiscal issue going on in America but that really hit New York hard and then because New York was such a shithole people were moving out. Yeah. So you got even more of an issue where like now people are leaving so there's consumerism and stuff in New York's even worse. So but yeah, come around no tax revenue coming in and then Mayor Lindsay asked for a bailout from Washington to help them and yeah, so uh, DC has said no. In so, 1975 and there was like that famous headline that was uh, Ford to City drop dead. Yeah. And there was this big backlash about New York and everyone was like let New York burn. Yeah and there was the garbage there was a thing garbage wasn't picked up for like two weeks. Uh, they actually ended up laying off like 1,500 to 2,000 cops because didn't have the money to pay them uh, and, and sanitation and police workers uh, you know uh, municipality workers were working without being paid so it was like and then you're saying people are leaving so when they're leaving stuff's becoming vacant you have the South Bronx they're finishing urban renewal they're knocking everything down and then there's like there's just like where you you get to see a lot of that like in uh, Fort Apache the Bronx especially or that other movie Wolfen yeah. We have entire areas of the South Bronx are just like it looked like a post-apocalyptic movie, you know, because you have these tenements that are just you know rubble and there's blocks that are just empty with just you know and so New York was in a state of shit in the mid seventies. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know why anyone would want to live here <laughs> yeah, or well, just live through it. You know, like you know, it's so amazing to think that like you know, I have a couple friends that I work with in the city who they bought property like they bought a building say in the mid eighties for nothing, yeah. and it's worth a gazillion dollars now. They sit on that building down in like you know. Alphabet City because <laughs> you know back then it was you could get the you can get it for like a dollar it was basically why would you want to buy property and you know now you think about now that you know how, how it's, yeah. it's such a turnaround the housing well value. the building I live in uh, was built in the 70s in an effort to try to bring people it's right it's like it's near Times Square so I mean that was we're talking the 70s and 80s Times Square was yeah it was all you know it was like a scary and, place yeah. and a lot of uh you know, obviously, there's the, the big grindhouse uh, thing, which is great in terms of the you know the, the movies being shown and the B movies and the exploitative movies. But there's also a lot of the a lot of the porn theaters and stuff, and there's a lot of prostitutes and and stuff. But so, but the building I live in was built in an effort to bring like wealthy people to try to try to turn start to turn this part of town, Hell's Kitchen, over to to a nicer you know, to try to bring, you know, a higher class, for lack of a better better term, people to the area and hopefully start to turn the area into a a better neighborhood. But what backfired was these were supposed to be like luxury apartments. And then everybody was like, I'm not moving there. (laughs) You know, no, they couldn't, they couldn't give them away. So essentially that's what they ended up doing was they ended up turning the entire building into like subsidized housing and just started filling it with people on limited income because nobody wanted to live here. Oh, because it was so scary and violent. You had murders and, you know, I mean, all kinds of stuff was happening at the time. It was. I mean, I talked to uh, my neighbor is an older woman and she was, she, she's been here since the beginning, just about. And she was telling me that she lived... Uh, 
down a couple of blocks, kind of close to where Hero Boy is. And she was saying that, you know, it was really scary. There'd be like prostitutes in the doorway and people would just break into mailboxes in the building, they'd break into the building and they'd just break into the mailboxes to see if there was any like people sending money to somebody. And so this building was a big deal, but that was part of it. So escape for things like escape from New York and warriors, which we talked about was based on a book that was written before this, but uh, before the seventies, but that's where this like sentiment of, uh, it didn't seem New that York being crap that and if you want to hear plausible yeah you, you know, know taxi driver yeah uh, maniac I mean you see where New York was going at that know. time if you want to listen to our big rant about New York <laughs> film oddly enough it's in our weekend of birdies <laughs> yeah we talk about you know where by the 80s it became just a joke you know in Crocodile Dundee and, and like movies like you know those 80s kind of movies so that's why a, a, a subject like uh, a plot like Escape from New York didn't seem that far fetched. Yeah, and then you, you know this was even by eighty one when it was made, it was still like that. Oh, it was like it wasn't until the- like Giuliani came in, and then it started to get like the Disneyfication of Times Square, as people kind of put it, with you know trying to really vamp it up and make it more of like a almost like a you know. A, Definitely like a tourist attraction, yeah. almost like Disney World or something. Bring it back. I mean, I think eighty two is that a really good movie I liked from a couple of years ago called The Most Violent Year, and it's because nineteen eighty two was the most violent year in New York City's history. It hit like a kind of a, a, a cusp there, and uh, certainly, you know, you just think of at the time with the, there was you know that's why you have Death Wish, the Vigilantes, and you have yeah. these movies, and all fed into that, or you have just a. Just the move. The, the the city was rotting for all the other economic reasons that you had all those other big cities in the you know in all of America rotting. And then at the time when Carpenter said he wrote this, he said it was kind of Watergate was going on. Uh, and then there was a backlash to Watergate and, and and people you know the people who were in in power and government and stuff like that. And then he sat on it. And then when the movie ended up kind of coming out and come to fruition, Carter his administration was ending, and you had the Iranian. They had seized an embassy, so they were holding yeah, uh, it was hostages a big hostage situation for which is the almost longest, a year. Yeah, yeah. It, was almost, it was like 400, 400 days. days. 400 days or so. so. It was like over a year. Yeah, and then they ended up giving them up when so Reagan mo- came in. So this ended. Up, this movie came out the same year that that ended. So yeah. there was this big hostage situation. So I think that's another reason why this movie kind of resonated at the time. And we're talking about... Um, you know, the world's a scary place now, obviously, but at the time it was like things were starting to, you know, seemed very bleak. And, and it's, it's funny because, you know, history repeats itself. So, you know, whatever side of the political aisle you fall on, people have the yeah. same problems where it's like, you know, compare Reagan to Bush or Bush to Reagan or to yeah. Carter to Obama, Obama to Carter. So or, it's I mean, like, just you take the Iranian situation and you got you got the terrorists. Yeah, so that's happening now really with ISIS and stuff, you know, and politics. It's, but, you know, just it's the world itself is kind of scary. And. And that that was like the the way uh, the future was viewed for the most part in the late seventies and early eighties was going to be like a very post apocalyptic. We had the Cold War was going yeah. on, and so a lot of the what's taught they talk about Leningrad, you know, the Siberian Wars of, of, of New York. That's all has to do with like Russia, which again, yeah, it's all <laughs> it's about- kind of like like you said, history's kind of repeating itself. But at that time, you know, by you know. Uh, 1981, when this movie came out, Rocky didn't go to Russia yet no, and fight no. Rocky. So we still had that <laughs> and really... Bri- and bridge the gap. Yeah, we still were really talking about Star Wars technology and, and meaning that, like, you know, Reagan talking about, like, you know, 
making a system in space to be able to shoot down any ballistic missiles, the intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I think the interesting thing about one of the beautiful and interesting things about art and uh, especially cinema for me is that the movies that are made are always a, ref- a reflection of the time. So when you get into science fiction and these kinds of movies that are uh, trying to forecast the future, wh- how people are uh, expressing what they think about the future at that time is completely reliant or uh, shaped by what's going on at the time. So it, it, there's no it, it, there's no coincidence that things like Escape from New York, Warriors, uh, Mad Max, one, are coming out at the time because of financial, because the success of Mad Max maybe led to these other movies getting made. But also, like, this was written, Escape from New York was written before Mad Max came out. Yeah. So it, this is like, what's going on in the zeitgeist and stuff. And you can always, like in the 50s, science fiction was all about monsters and, and radiation. Yeah, <laughs> you the know? atomic bomb and, and the uh, Cold War And there. also some paranoia because of what's going on there. So this is just falls into a, another... Uh, setting the stage of what's happening. Yeah, uh, it's just contextually it's, it's representative the of what's happening. You know, and, and I think then, that's always important. To and then, if you're recognize. a student of history, it's funny that just everything just repeats itself. <laughs> it all just <laughs> it all just comes around because you could probably take Escape from New York, and I mean, I you know, it's it's as implausible as it is now, and it's silly. Like you know, you'd never make a prison on New York. It's just if you take away that big elephant in the room, you know, it's it's still a movie that could. If you reshape it somehow, you know, or you know, it could very easily be done today in a certain way, you know. Oh yeah, with totally. Like Supermax well, prisons you know, they're stuff. talking about remaking it. Um, you know, Neil Marshall is a director that uh, is another director that watched this movie and wanted to make movies when he was a kid, and he'd made a movie called Doomsday, which essentially is it's a remake of this movie, except for it's like in Glasgow. You know, it's it's like Escape from Glasgow, yeah. Scotland. It's not Escape from New oh, York. Oh, that's from a couple years ago, like yeah. 2007, yeah. And even the girl who's the main character, who's like the Snake Plissken character, it's a female, but even she's got one eye in it, and she has to go in there to retrieve something. Just recently, this past year, uh, Carpenter and the company that made this movie won a lawsuit against Luc Besson, because Luc Besson had written and produced a movie called Lockout with uh, Guy Pierce. Which was essentially escape from space, escape from a space station. There was a penitentiary in space, and the president's daughter goes up, and she gets trapped in there. And Guy Pierce has to go up and get her. And they just won like five hundred thousand dollars. Carpenter, Nick Castle, who co-wrote this with Carpenter, and the company that made this just won the lawsuit. Really, they they got that because what? It was just so many of the plot points were similar. They sued and they pointed. They yeah, there was too many similar similar. You think like Super Fortress? What's that Lambert movie from with the, with Alcatraz in space? <laughs> oh, Fortress. Yeah, you yeah. think that, that that would they would sue the, like th- those people would sue. So well, yeah. That, yeah, well, yeah, but it's well. I was shocked that like really you're going to sue Luke Besson, but you don't sue Lu- Lu- Neil Marshall. Yeah, uh, because that movie Doomsday is exact. Even when I saw it, I was like, like this. I like this better when John Carpenter. Did. <laughs> I mean, maybe if I saw it now and I, I'm I'm separated from it. Yeah, because my that was my initial. I only saw it one time. Well, that's that was my initial reaction. Was like. It's this when there's just such a ripoff, you know. It's like they should have sued the guys who did Escape from L.A. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, when it's that much of a ripoff, it's like that's not even clever. It's just like so you know. if, if you haven't seen Escape from New York, 
uh, for one, shame on you. Yeah. Two, it's about uh, basically in a nutshell, the president is on his way to some kind of conference. The and, Hartford Summit in Hartford. The Hartford Summit that's going to end basically World War Three. Yeah, with the Chinese and and the, and the Russians. Russians. His uh, flight. We don't. It's interesting because we don't. Well, there's so is, much implied. This is what I love too. So. Um, to stop you for one second, Carpenter writes this in the mid seventies. I just finished a book, uh, another great one that is uh, is highly recommended called um, uh, the, 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 the Days giving, of Rage, The Giving Tree, The Giving Tree. <laughs> and I'm gonna, it's about this tree that just gives itself away to this kid. It's so horrible at the end. You know, I don't I don't want to tell you how it ends. Um, it's called Days of Rage by Brian Burroughs, and it's about the seventies. Counterculture and that, like the Black Panthers and the BLA Black Militant uh, Army, and the, the all these different things, weathermen that came out that people don't really talk about anymore. That was basically like, say, the far left. Yeah. And in the seventies, you had these groups that were like these long names: the Weather Underground, the you know the Siberian Liberation Army, the Siamese. They had all these crazy front cult. So, and they'd be doing these bombings until the mid eighties. These these groups were still robbing banks to try to get money to be able to do their cause because they wanted to take down. They didn't like what America was like. And, you know, people, you can argue if they were doing it, their cause justly because they were robbing banks and killing people. And, you know, and they tried to bomb buildings that they thought were fascist or, you know, they were attacking capitalism. Yeah, but yeah. you always had these, you know, I just literally just finished this book. And, it, and up until the early 80s, you'd have these random pipe bombings at places, you know, at Bank of America or hit this place. And they would issue this communique. And then the communique, we are the weather underground and we hate you fascist pigs you sure. son of- so watching this movie I, it's like you know you're saying that the plane is taken over and you have this girl in the cockpit and yeah. she's like saying we are the new wave front you <laughs> yeah. fascist pig. and it's like that's and then you look at the third installment of the dirty harry series the enforcer yeah that's what it's about too it's like this, oh, i mean you, know look, I mean? It's not, you have I those mean, at the time that was a really realistic thing you know coming more realistic yeah I mean, unfortunately now we're dealing with like isis and- oh yeah yeah but you have like the American um, in, in the context of Escape from New York, you have the American, like you know, militant American. Yeah, they're taking over and they're trying to kick it to capitalism or whatever. Yeah, F you. Yeah. So they're they're doing this and that's what they do. Somehow well, there's a siege. It's on one the of the brilliant things one. about this movie is because that's a movie in and of itself. I mean, it's called Air Force One. <laughs> in a exactly. way, you know, like you can have the Russians. <laughs> Good dude. You can have a whole movie that's just about that. Yeah. But here we get the, the very end of it. <laughs> we know that it's there's a plane, there's a jet flying over New York and it's they're trying to figure out what it is. It turns out it's Air Force One, one letters, and yeah. it, it has gotten taken over yeah. by the nurse from Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. She's killed the cock. She's locked herself in the cockpit, and she's reading the fucking communique. Yeah. It's very scary. See, this is all the stuff you, when you're a kid it, you start remembering. That's kind of like the brilliant thing about one of the brilliant strokes of genius about it's a It's a kind of a, a lesson in storytelling. You don't need that. You, you don't need to know how they got in the plane, yeah. you know, in a how they did this how they took it over you know we don't we don't need all that story i mean it would be great if that was your story yeah but it's but it's it's not relevant for this we which just is, have to know that this is what happened which is like the beginning of the movie that ends up getting cut we can talk yeah. about he didn't need that so he's like well, we don't need it so the jet ends up crashing in new york city the president escapes in an escape pod <laughs> which doesn't look very safe I'm gonna say. <laughs> new york city is now uh, a is the is the only penitentiary in America? Yeah, it holds like three million people. They basically put a wall around New York, down the Jersey coast of the Hudson River, uh, up Brooklyn, you know, through Brooklyn and Queens, just walled in Manhattan. It kept the water 
area, well, the yeah. waterfront, which I would have thought they would have just bordered the Manhattan Island, but they just they kept the Manhattan Island, and like you're saying, they kept the water, the Hudson and the East River and the Harlem River, and then they just walled up the yeah the mainland around it. So Manhattan Island is just it's a it's it's a prison. It's unclear. Um, they're not giving them. They've all electric is supposedly turned off and gas, and I, it's unclear. Are they sending food in? I don't know. They send food in. Here's the so there's see, a lot now, of like. See, it's like how do it's like we're all here's the, where like the, this, the social groups be like is, this is not human. You know, <laughs> humanitarian. Here's where this is going to get sketchy, and we can talk about the novelization, which we have to because throughout the yeah. this story, and I can explain things. You should throw. You should throw. Or some we stuff should out talk there. about. Or we can talk about it all in one chunk later because the novelization asks answers almost all of a lot of these questions yeah. so there's a novelization by mike mcquarrie right yeah that we we always love to tie the novelizations in as if you listen to us before because we like to we see that a lot of these times a lot of these novelizations answer all these questions because they have they have a lot of time to write yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have a lot of time to fill in and you know so they, and so they answer a lot of these questions <laughs> Yeah, and so basically novelizations are usually based on an earlier version of the script yeah. while the movie's being made because they want the novelization to come out either just before the movie comes out or in conjunction with the release yeah. of the movie. So it's not like they can wait, a, a, a direct, you know, a writer can wait to watch the movie and then write the novelization. He's working on scripts, and as we know, things get cut out from movies. But what's made. also brilliant is a lot of times they have to have questions they have to answer, the author yeah. or whoever's doing this, so... If you have a if you have a movie you love and there's a novelization, you might fifty fifty shot that there's going to be a lot more backstory that's not in the movie that ends up in the novelization. Sure, and there's things mentioned even in the movie, but because I, uh, I because I read the novelization in conjunction with for this podcast, a lot of this, uh, a lot of it's combined for me. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I don't. Like, that's how I was when we did Dirty Harry. I, I was like. <laughs> I couldn't figure Wait, out what's is this in the movie. Yeah. Or is this in well, there's the a lot of stuff that I don't see that they leave out. But there's like you're saying, there's a lot of hinting about snakes, Pliskin's past, yeah. about um, Hawks, Hawks, who's uh, Lee Van Cleef's past, yeah. and and it's all so basically in the World War Three, the the exposition about this World War Three we got into. Yeah, so uh, so I think the best way to tackle it is just to kind of fill it. in the blanks yeah. as we go through the plot here. So uh, to answer your question about food. Yeah. When he goes to the chuck full of nuts and he meets the girl. Yeah. Um, Maureen. And she's like, what's going on? He's like, oh, the crazies are out because it's the end of the month. They're out of food. Yeah. Uh, that's re- imp- that's implying that at the end of the month or the beginning of the month, at the very end of the month or beginning of the month, there's a food drop. And that's what we see in in Central Park. Oh, when they're waving them down. Yeah. Yeah. It, they, they drop the food in the middle of Central Park. And then that's the food. Jeez. People have to fend for themselves. So that's kind. Of, that's the answer to your question about <laughs> about that. Um, in terms of backstory, well, so so president president yeah. finished the uh, the president yeah, crashes so, here. He's stuck here, and then they uh, we can get into why. But they basically, have to get him out. the prisoners are holding him hostage. Yeah. They tell Lee Van Cleef, who's the warden of the prison. That you know, you need to get. Lee Van Cleef goes to to inspect the crash site, the crash site, and hopefully within seconds get the president. Ho- hopefully, out of find the president. In his he gets body. there, and Romero's there. Yeah, who is uh, Frank Doubleday, <laughs> played by Frank Doubleday, amazing. Who is who had guest appearance in a lot of seventies and eighties television shows, but he's also. In Assault on Precinct 13. He's the guy with the sniper rifle that's driving around in the car. Dun, 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 yeah. uh, Frank Doubleday delivers 
<laughs> kind of like a beautifully weird performance in this movie. Um, but his, you know, he's there's a there's an aspect of the movie that never got fleshed out, uh, which is that a lot of the people, especially the crazies, they're cannibals. Yeah, and so he's uh, Romero is like he's a very odd looking guy, and his teeth are supposed to be like shaved down to points. Um, but he shows up and he tells Lee Yankley, you got you know, you got 30 seconds to get out of here. And he shows that he's, he gives them the, like the president's finger to yeah, show with, that with they the have presidential him. freaking right. uh, ring on it. So Lee Van Cleef leaves. And then there's this, there's a lot of stuff in the book about, uh, when he gets back and he's talking to like the secretary, uh, who's played by Charles, uh, I don't know if it's Charles Cyphers, Who's in Halloween? He plays the sheriff in Halloween. Yeah, he's the like, the weather guy in the fog. Um, there's a lot of stuff there. Here we just get a very small snippet where he puts him on the phone with the vice president and Lee Van Cleef's just like, "I want to go in and I want to try a uh, rescue mission." Because basically they were like, "We need to th- go in and get him." And Lee Van Cleef's like, "If we go in with force, they're going to kill him." Yeah. And the importance of the president is that he's got this audio cassette that he needs to get to the summit. Yeah, it's, so it's really like that's more important than the president is. They, it becomes because they throw this all on Pliskin's back, where it's like yeah. you, you know we need to get the president out. You need to get him out alive. You need to get him out with the tape. We don't really care about the president. But then, then there's this clock where it's like you got to get him up to the Hartford summit because <laughs> if if you don't if the Hartford summit's over before yeah. you so the whole world's gonna blow up. Yeah, just, yeah. You know, Basically, like this the, is the only this is the our last ditch effort to try to end. This ongoing war, yeah, and so they need the president, and they need this tape so that they can end basically. <laughs> Do you know World anything about nuclear fusion? No, <laughs> okay, then don't. You know, so it's like it's, it's a lot of MacGuffins there to just you know they, yeah. the summit. They have to get this tape up as a good a, a gesture of goodwill towards China and Russia at this by these before the summit ends to like you're saying end yeah. World War Three and save the freaking planet. So <laughs> they can't go in with force because they'll kill the president. So they're going to try to sneak somebody in. They just recently arrested Snake Plissken, who's like a legendary f- criminal uh, who has who has a military record, which there's a lot of more backstory to that in the book. And so he says, we can sneak, in, we'll sneak in, in Plissken and, and he'll get a pardon. Yeah. That's his reward for if he can get the president out in 20. It's also weird because they're like, you got to get him out in 22 hours, but he's got a 23-hour clock. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought they gave him the 23-hour clock because it take an hour for them to get him on the glider. But then when he's looking at the clock, it's already like 20. He's like, come on, you're wasting time. <laughs> you know, you got to de-ice the plane. You go, my things are going to dissolve. Yeah. So the, uh, it's a further, uh, for further incentive because they're basically putting him in a glider. So, you know, so they could take the glider and just leave New York. They inject these like two little bombs in his neck. And they're encased in something that's going to dissolve in his body. And in 22 hours, once they're dissolved, they'll go off. Which is basically kill him. I think very plausible with technology nowadays. You could probably do something like that, you know? Yeah. It's like all this stuff is... They are really checking off all the boxes of, you know, get away from the fantastic plot of saving the president, bringing this audio tape to to the Hartford Summit. It's like, you're right. He he needs to be able to get there. He needs to get to the president. He can't just fly away with the glider. They're they're, they're, they're making it so he has to to go. They kind of force his hand. You know, so basically that's our plot. We have this guy who's uh, gonna go to prison anyway. Yeah, he's going there anyway. Like he even says that to Lee. He's like, either way, I'm going in. What do I care? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's got he's got 22 hours or so to get the president out because after 22 hours, the Chinese and the Russian ambassadors or whatever they're gonna leave the summit and then that's it. Yeah. Uh, so 
that's the plot in a nutshell is this mission of our hero snake Pliskin, who is uh an interesting hero because there are no real social redeeming socially redeeming qualities about Pliskin. No. He's, he's like we more like him just because he's cool. He's you a know? badass. He's, he's the anti hero. <laughs> you know, even like Mad Max had a had reason. Yeah. You know, he was after revenge for like Well he's spoiler alert. <laughs> you know, I mean it was a revenge plot. We we've we've come to We've said this a lot that Carpenter likes to make westerns in disguise, and this is yeah. like another uh, another example of him making kind of a western because his hair, the character here is just basically the the lone sheriff or gunfighter, sure. or even he's like the Yo Jimbo, you know, um, hired gun that comes into town and plays both sides for his own, and then you like him just because. He does all the things you always want to do. Stand up to. Yeah. to we don't know or, anything about you know. him, and like you, you, inter- you know, you alluded to. The one scene where we would have learned anything about him was the opening scene was originally that he robs a bank. It's like 10 minutes of the first 10 minutes. Basically, the the first reel of the movie, first 10 minutes of the movie is this bank robbery scene. And he's got a partner. Yeah, Taylor. Named Taylor. And there's a little bit of exposition given back and forth um, between the two of them that there was. They have a relationship. He's got this partner. Uh, This was a scene that for years was thought to be lost. And then I remember when you got a special edition of like the VHS, we watched it in your dorm room at college and it got really annoying because we were trying to watch it and there was like voiceover commentary. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, shut up so we can watch it. And, and they cleaned it up pretty good because they found it like in like the salt mines and like some Utah vault or in Arizona or something like that. And I think now it's readily available. You can see it. It's like the only time it's on you the see... Blu-rays and DVDs. Yeah. Now. And it, I mean, it's still, it's from like a work print. Yeah. But I mean, so it's, it's still, it's not like, they can't remaster to look as good as the movie, but it, considering it, it, it has still, very much like the that Tom Selleck movie Runaway with Gene Simmons, it has that kind of a feel to it. Yeah, because there's like little robots at the beginning, like in the bank, and it's all underground. And they have a great, it's a great idea where they're like they're they rob the bank, and it, it's just like Pliskin, like you know, as a maintenance worker, and he does something, he leaves the bank while it's closing, and then his friend hotwires the subway, which is underground, which goes from like it's a transatlantic subway system. Awesome idea! So it's like going from city to city, so you can get on the, that in DC, and you can end up in San Francisco or Texas or whatever. Yeah. So he hotwires it to end somewhere at the end of the line, and it's the only time when they get on the train again, they think they're free. You see, Pliskin actually smirks. Yeah. And it's the only time he actually like smiles in the movie, which is yeah. like so you really see he has affinity for this person. And then when they get off the subway, uh, for you know they they realized it was a um, it was a robbery, and his friend gets killed, and it's a, you know it's, and then he yeah. gives up, and, and that's the beginning and, of the movie. And Pliskin gets caught because he goes back to f- yeah to, for yeah. him. So yeah. that's like the only that's the only instance in the movie where we see anything really redeemable about like a, or a backstory even yeah like backstory, but we see that like. This guy was important to him. Yeah, he gets caught. He could have. He, he had a. He could leave. He had a window to. Get yeah, out. it's like he. He, he, he could have. He yeah. got out of there. <laughs> he could have gotten out of there. Yeah, Carlito, he, man, you just killed Benny Bronco from the Bronx. But instead, he goes back for his friend. Yeah, and that's how he gets caught. Aside from that, which isn't in the movie, the, like you know, uh, Russell explains Snake Plissken as like a guy who's only worried about the next sixty seconds. Yeah. Like he lives for the next six seconds. The next minute, he's only there. For, he he's really he doesn't care about anything other than survival. Yeah, and they have this, and then we have the World War Three, and then there becomes this national police force, and that's headed by Lee Van Cleef, who's also the warden yeah. of the New York Maximum Security Prison. Yeah. Uh, so that's the, our first scene is them bringing him to to be 
brought in. And I like the idea, like, when they get there, they you see them getting, like, uh, processed, and you have, like, the uncredited Jamie Lee Curtis, yeah. her voiceover, which is also... She's the narrator in the beginning. And she's also the in the deleted scenes. She's in the bank. She's that narrator in the bank scenes. Like, the bank is closing. There's been a robbery, yeah. you know? But she's she's a narrator so no in the talking, beginning. No talking. Follow the orange line. Yeah. If you if you decide to terminate yourself now, just let your supervisor know, and we will, we will terminate and, um, you know, cremate you on premises. It's like, it's so... Oh, it's so heavy. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of, in a nutshell... The plot of the movie. Now, uh, I don't know. Do you want to get into some of the backstory and stuff that the book talks about? Well, then... Kind of, like, fill so in... So then, uh, Lee Van Cleef's, like... And, and uh, Lee Van Cleef's, like, bring in um, Snake Plissken. And we'll, and then that's when he pitches the uh, the story to him. Yeah. Plissken, who's very much like Clint Eastwood yeah. type in this. It's very much like him playing how Eastwood would have played it. Yeah, well, you know, Russell... Obviously, Carpenter wrote the script. Carpenter wrote the script in the mid-70s, like we said. He was, in the early 80s, he was going to, he's working on a movie called The Philadelphia Experiment. It was a, which was gonna, a novel, which they wanted to make, make into a movie. Which they ended up making into a movie yeah. a few years later. But he had a two-picture deal with, was it Avco? I forget the name of the company that made this movie. Yeah. But he made The Fog, and he was going to do The Philadelphia Experiment for a second movie. He was, they were running into problems with the script. He was writing the script. There was there was just issues that were like coming, and it was taking longer than expected. So then Carpenter's like, "Well, if you don't care about like, if you don't mind, if you don't want to spend more time trying to work this out, I have this other script called Escape from New York." They read it, they like it. Then Carpenter brings in Nick Castle, who's a member of the infamous band the Coupe de Ville. Yeah, he played the Shape, aka Michael Myers at Halloween. Um, he directed. Last Starfighter, which we talked about, and it's funny, we I, th- researching this movie, we talked about how that opening scene of Last Starfighter is a lot like a musical without music. Yeah. Nick Castle's parents were choreographers. choreographers. Yeah. I, don't rem- I don't just don't remember if we mentioned that in the, when we I did Last Starfighter. But he did uh, The Boy That Could Fly, uh, one of the de- those Dennis Menace movies. Uh, so Nick Castle has become a director in like his in his own right. So Carpenter says he wrote the first draft as like an action pick, and he kind of credits Castle bring interjecting the humor in. Yeah, the, he created the, the dark, character of Cabby. Yeah, and a lot of the humor that you see those lines that are kind of like the New York touches that they say, like you know. Now Russell uh, gets cast because Carpenter fights for him. Yeah. Basically, they they want a bigger the company the studio wants a bigger star. They were they were going for Tommy Lee Jones at the time. Uh, they were looking at Jeff Bridges and Nick Nolte, who both say no. They look at Chris Christopherson. The studio also wants Charles Bronson, which and, I think would have been pretty cool. And Charles Bronson, I, from what I heard, really wanted to do it. But he was too old. Carpenter thought he was too old as well. As Carpenter was worried about a, a star that established. Because yeah. Carpenter wants control over everything. Yeah, Carpenter basically said he's too old for it, and two, he was inti- he was intimidated. But I will say, in an alternate reality, that would have been pretty sweet to see. <laughs> you know, you, you get like, you know, Charles Bronson. Because even like in Death Witch, which is what seven years before, six years before, even though yeah. he's like fifty, he's jacked. Yeah, you yeah. know. So it'd be cool to see him. Like, we're gonna go inside. <laughs> I almost feel like a Snake Plissken, a little bit older than Russell was when he made this. Uh, uh, like would have worked. Like yeah. would've, maybe would have even been better. I mean, they, <laughs> they said they they toyed with the idea of Eastwood. I don't know why it didn't go down yeah. that road. But Eastwood at the time was he hit fifty in uh, in nineteen eighty, and then they even said 
Chuck Norris, and Chuck yeah. Norris turned it down, which would have been a completely different movie. But Carpenter had worked with Russell on the Elvis movie and liked Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. Russell was a child star through television. And His father through- was Bing, Cros- Bing Crosby. <laughs> Bing Russell, whoever else was named Bing. Yeah. And he was a character actor in the 50s, so Kurt Russell got born into yeah, that Yeah, you could see system. Russell in episodes of... Uh, sea Hunt. He's in. He's in an episode. I think Gilgan's Island. Of maybe either Lost Hazel in space. or Dennis the Menace. He's he's in. A, he's in some Dennis the Menace episodes, and then he became a kind of this Disney kid star. Not in Sea the Hunt. 60s. I'm thinking of Jeff Bridges because of Lloyd. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay. I'll Thank forgive you. you. Thank you. But yeah, then he gets into he gets into the Disney system. And he meets Walter, and he makes Walt all Disney. those like the computer that wore tennis shoes and the Jodie Foster kind of like yeah the, the, those movies at the so. Time. Uh, Oddly enough, he gets cast as Elvis in this TV movie that Carpenter does. But Carpenter loves working with them because because he grew up in the business and part of the, in a way part of like the quote unquote studio system. He Carpenter says he's a kind of, he's his kind of actor, which means he comes to work prepared. He does, there's no like foolish games involved. There's no drama. He comes, he hits his mark, and he knows his lines. Yeah, and James Cagney used to say that's the biggest thing about acting: know your lines and hit your mark. Uh, and so Carpenter fights for. Uh, Russell to play Pliskin and Plisk and Russell has been wanting to break out of that. But it's like the Michael Keaton situation prior to Batman, where it's like people are like, how can you serious? Yeah. You're going to have Kurt Russell because you think about like you're saying prior to that, there's nothing really. He played Elvis, but he's doing <laughs> he was doing Disney movies, yeah, yeah, he as a, a as a child he, actor. He's only like thirty by the time this movie comes out, which is crazy to think. I thought he was like in his forties when I watched it. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, I'm getting old. But Russell really kind of embraces the character, gets in shape for it. Yeah, he gets on a weird um, diet to, to keep himself in shape. And Russell's the one that brings up the idea of the eye patch. Yeah, he's like, I think he should, I think I should wear an eye patch. <laughs> and he doesn't he go to like the costume designer and they, they kind of he picks the costume out. Yeah, they pick out the costume and they're talking about him and Carpenter talk about like. He's, you know, he's from the he's from the military, but he was in like the Siberian War. So, what would the camouflage be? It wouldn't be green. So, like that's why his camouflage pants are like white and gray and black. Yeah, and uh, he has this idea. He wants to have like a self lighting cigarette that they could never figure out to how to do on set. Um, but he wanted to like lift the eye patch up at some one point and show how mangled his eye was. The carpenter's like, we don't have my t- money or time. To do, I can't do that. To do that. Uh, but uh, Russell also says that this is his f- Escape from New York is his favorite movie that he's made. Yeah. Um, and he loves the it's his favorite character and his favorite movie. Yeah. Right? And he feels that you know, in a lot of ways, Pliskin is very much. Uh, like a cut, like the, the almost like the love child of Carpenter and Russell. Like he's a, he's a culmination of the two of them. And I've heard Carpenter talk about that he grew up with a guy, or he knew a guy that grew up in Cleveland, and then the guy when he went to high school in Cleveland knew a guy named Snake. Yeah, his, he had Carpenter had a friend who knew a guy in Cleveland in high school whose name was Snake Plissken had a snake tattoo and was kind of like a high school tough guy yeah, who back. can make the snake dance and the yeah, tattoo yeah. was on his stomach like a cobra tattoo or whatever and so that's where the idea for the, the name Snake Plissken comes from yeah he wanted, uh, and that's just a cool name yeah so. and, then, and then Russell takes the idea and then he says I guess when Lee Van Cleef was cast of the role he says like okay you know I'm going to look at like how he says he looks at how Eastwood looked at playing the character in the spaghetti westerns because Lee Van Cleef was in two of the three Eastwood spaghetti westerns. Yeah. So he kind of feels it that way. And it's almost like how you see Jack Burton to me is like an homage to John Wayne. Yeah. You know, it's the same very kind much of, so. I mean, even you know, adopts a little bit of like the, the 
the way he speaks. Eastwood's cadence is yeah, yeah. It's like I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? it's not so. It's a little bit of an impression, but less an impression of more of just trying to like I think how it's like an Eastwood play that. Yeah, you know, it's certainly not. He's yeah, he's not going through. You know, he's not doing. You know through beats as, as Eastwood, but it's certainly like it's there. It's, it's, I, I love it because I'm a huge Eastwood fan, so I, I have such an affinity for it. So he gets that role kind of down, and they give him like a Mac 10 with like a scope and like a suppressor and all these other kind of like, I think he's like a 357 and knives and stuff like that. And um, they end up shooting the movie, which is funny, in East St. Louis, because at the time in the mid 70s, East St. Louis had a big urban fire in like 75 or 76 yeah. on the waterfront. It kind of gutted like a whole area of the downtown. Yeah, big chunk because, I mean, they were they were shooting. They had run of like 10 blocks at a time. Yeah, they would turn the power off and like they were really accommodating. Now, this past October, I was on the debate trail with my job and I was in St. Louis for one of the presidential debates and we were there for like a week and... Uh, we were near Washington University in the Del Mar Loop area of St. Louis, and we would go downtown to where the arch is, and that's St. Louis, Missouri, and then there'd be the Mississippi River, and across that, they'd be East St. Louis, which is Illinois. Yeah. And they told us, do whatever you want. St. Louis is a rough city in certain areas, which watch out, but whatever you do, they said, do not go across the river to East St. Louis. And they said, like, it's so bad that... Even municipalities, like, they stop delivering garbage pickup, mailmen. Sometimes police won't come because it's so bad, the crime in their area. So they really warned us, like, not to go to East St. Louis. So, like, of course, a couple of my friends, that's the first thing they do. They go, like, and they they find laundromats and do the laundry in East St. Louis. But, so, East St. Louis has this huge reputation of being, like, this hellhole. And so they end up... you know, likely started because of that fire. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it was like before the fire. It's the urban decay, because they wanted uh, a, a, a city that looked like an East city like and northeastern like you know like yeah. a uh a philadelphia or new york or an albany well, they needed you know. like a, you know like yeah. an actual urban environment so it looks kind of look it couldn't be like la or some back studio yeah. back lot so they're able to find east st louis which ends up because they shoot all at night and ends up being great they have huge blocks they can play with and they that the city lets yeah. them turn the so power the majority off. of the exteriors are shot there the theater and the train station are actually across it, the river in st louis missouri in yeah. missouri and then they also the and a lot of the was, interiors. I think the other thing that people, when they say they shot a lot of it or they shot the movie there, for the most part, it's mostly just the exteriors. A lot of the interiors were actually shot in LA. Yeah, and then I think the other key thing was they had access to this bridge, which is called like the the Rolling Rocker. I forget what the they, old something Rock Bridge. And um, they which, wanted, yeah, which was a bridge, an old chain of rocks bridge. Yeah, and that was they wanted to kind of they call it in the movie the 69th Street Bridge, but I think they wanted it to be the 59th Street Bridge, which we have in Manhattan, which is leads to Roosevelt Island. Yeah, and they 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 carpenter and the tump company buys it for a dollar. They can do whatever the hell they want to it, and then at the end of the shooting, they, they sell it back to them for a dollar. Yeah, <laughs> which is amazing. It must be they could have blew the whole bridge weird, up. like you know. Uh, must you know, be some kind of weird legalities. Like we can't let you sit there and let's use it unless, unless you, you buy it. it. So okay, so a dollar. Uh, so that was also another glint. And that's the other thing is we talk about how the island of Manhattan is surrounded by these walls. The bridges still exist, but they're mines. Yeah. Uh, so they they're almost impossible. To and cross. you see that right at the very beginning, just to give you a setup, you see like these two poor. P- pieces of shit who were just like on a raft they made like, <laughs> kind of, like food and they're trying to like with with just like it looks like they have like freaking pieces of wood just like planks yeah. of wood and well, it's like, like how you imagine you know, like they talk about the alcatraz escape yeah and the, the england brothers made it out of like, frank morris getting off of there rain slicker <laughs> <laughs> and so uh you, you get the setup of how you know that that you have 
the, the yeah, helicopters patrolling the waters, like you're saying, there's everything's fortified, the bridges are mined, and there's watchtowers, you're not going to get out. So there's no people getting out. So um, they send in Snake Plissken. Yeah. So uh, the, the thing about the novelization is... So that's... I'm sorry. So they... Lee Van Cleef and, and Russell of Snake have the interaction. And this is where, I guess, in the novelization, some stuff, you know. Well, even before that, the, there was the novelization, the, the weird, the, not the weird thing, but the thing about the novelization is he doesn't even get to New York, to Manhattan until midway through the book. So there's a lot of stuff in the beginning. The uh, robbery scene is very long, much more involved than it was in the deleted scene of the movie. If you watch the deleted scene, which I think we're, we might put up a link to watch it on YouTube if you haven't seen it before. Uh, and there's a there's a ton of backstory about Pliskin. Um, most, the, the biggest chunk is um, you learn that Pliskin, basically World War Three happens, and uh, the entire world is like, Gas, up people, right? and one of the one of the main one of the first things that gets hit in the war is Manhattan, and th- there's a big explanation about how uh, they, even though it's, you know, I guess it starts happening in the 80s, all the, the all the countries involved make a pact that they're not going to use nuclear weapons, and they think that they're going to use the nicer weapon of chemical warfare, and so New York gets hit. Uh, with chemical warfare and the gas, what the people that don't die from the gas go crazy. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why they just like the fallout, the, you know, the, the, yeah. So they, they end up initially walling in New York just to keep the people in. <laughs> it's that turns into like a zombie situation almost like 28 days later or something yeah, crazy. That's people, a, that's another, you can make a TV series. Out yeah. Of that. People go, we're, 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 we're invented TV <laughs> series right now. So people, the people in New York start going crazy. The people that don't get out and are saved, they start going crazy. They become cannibals. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's like that. What's that Romero movie that they remade? That was actually really good. The remake, um, cra- the crazies. Oh yeah, yeah. You know that's all about that. You know people going. Crazy yeah, from, basically. You know. I mean that's kind of it. And so the, so the novel gives the exposition of actually why New York they suddenly because yeah. that's kind of unclear and that. I think is if you want to fault this movie for anything is one of the things nowadays with the aging, it's like, well, why would they just take a a regular city and just wall it up? It's well, because if it was already attacked and it was gutted. Yeah. By 1997, when the movie takes place, they talk about how the West coast is, is like a wasteland. Yeah. And throughout the country, and like they say with the voiceover that's in the movie with Jamie Lee Curtis uncredited voiceover says by eighty nine the crime rate is doubled like four hundred percent yeah and then they they make in like a ninety or ninety one they make a police a national police force and then in ninety one or ninety two is when they is that when they or ninety seven is when they turn well, ninety seven is when the movie takes place so, so maybe ninety two they turn New York yeah. City into this federal prison and large parts of the country are are under this kind of gas poisoning that. People are going crazy. So the place yeah. is a is, and that's know, the joke because when um when Lee Van Cleef says the to Russell, I want you to get the president out. He goes like the president of what? <laughs> yeah. You know? And uh, so that's kind of that's the world we're in. Um, now Pliskin, he he's a military guy. He goes into the military. They describe him well. They're like some people are good at you know, some people can 
play beautiful music. Some people can do this. Like play, you know, inherently they have a they have a god given talent. Pliskin's talent is he can make war, and so he <laughs> it's, like, it's pre Rambo, and so he goes into the military. He's uh, you know, dec- he's decorated the youngest guy. Even Van Cleef says it in the movie: you're the youngest guy to be rewarded, whatever, from the president. Um, Pliskin becomes a bit of a legend and a hero in this war because uh he has a he he heads a squad that has a really big uh success rate and they did some kind of crazy mission where you know they saved the most amount of people and lost the least amount of people ever in the war so he's has this big success rate and he gets brought in on his his he and his guys get put into a mission where they're going to fly the golf flyer in Leningrad. In Leningrad. Yeah. And basically what the mission is, they tell him somebody's been captured. You need to go and save him before he spills the beans, before he gives the Russians, uh, he confesses to the Russians secrets. Yeah. You need to get there before that happens. He gets there with his team. Shit hits the is This fan. all told in backstory? Is this actually it's told? It's just like interspersed. <sighs> Excuse me. Like as you're, you know, like it's just like, in it's just like in the first five pages of the book, yeah. we're talking about this during the bank robbery. Oh, okay. They're just kind of like giving some backstory while action is happening. Snake gets there, shit hits the fan. He and his team, uh, they can't save the guy, so instead they set charges and they bury the guy under like five stories of building, like so that he won't spill the beans. Everybody in his platoon or whatever, his team dies except for. Taylor, yeah, who's the guy from the robbery, the bank robbery scene we we're just talking about? The, the deleted the scene, movie. yeah. Um, Snake loses his eye in yeah. that. Basically, something blows up, uh, and uh, you know, at, we're talking about chemical warfare and the gases and stuff. Something, something uh, blows up, and like shrapnel hits his goggles and breaks his goggles, and the gas is what ruins his eye. And you also see in the deleted scene, Taylor walks with a limp. Taylor walks with a limp because. Uh, they get into like the 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 fly, the glider. They get out, but when they get out, they crash. And Taylor hurts his breaks, like shatters his knee in the crash. The book always talks about Snake Plissken's eye, how it's like the th- it's throbbing, hurts. I talk about the pain that he goes through and how it shoots down his into his head, down his spine. He knows it's going to rain <laughs> because it's because, like just like arthritis in the knee. Yeah, yeah. So the eye later. is like this ongoing. Like they talk about, he suffers from this eye. Uh, he's in he's in uh, rehab. He was in the hospital or whatever. Uh, Taylor comes to visit him and says, "You know, it was fucking. It was bullshit." Like, the whole thing was bullshit. Really, what happened was the government, the American government, sent the guy in to make the, Rus- to make the Russians think they captured him. And he was, the guy was going to feed him false intel. Son of a bitch. And they were going to send, they sent Pliskin in just to make it look more legitimate. But the Russians never. It's like a, t- a Tom Clancy novel. Yeah, but the <laughs> Russians never bought it. Or Clyde they Klusler. knew the guy was bullshit. Son of a bitch. So Pliskin went in and his guys went in. All for nothing. They all for were no, For no reason. And that's when Pliskin turns into Pliskin. Oh, he turns, he gets totally disenfranchised. Yeah. Dis- and then, with the world. yeah. And that's when he becomes like the... The soldier of yeah, fortune. Like, or, yeah. Like the, the, the uh, drifter. Mercenary. Guy. And when Taylor dies at the end of the robbery, it just basically says like, 
when Taylor died, a piece of Pliskin died too, and then yeah. he didn't care about any. Taylor was the only other thing that he cared about other than himself. So it was like his last connection with like the human race. Yeah, it was the only other connection to humanity for yeah. Pliskin. So when Taylor died, that was it. That's yeah. why, like, when he gets to the thing, he doesn't give a fuck about anything. He goes and the crazies are trying to rape some girl in the, in the, in the theater in the movie yeah, and yeah. in the book. Pliskin just walks right by because, you know, he doesn't care about anything other than himself at this point. Yeah. Uh, so that's, like, Pliskin's backstory. We learn all that. There's, like I said, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, we learn about Hauk. Yeah, Lee Van Cleef's character, he comes in part of the prison He was also in Leningrad uh, in the book. He's they a talk, badass as well. They talk about how he was, uh, he was a badass in the same war. That's how he knows about Pliskin, how Pliskin knows about him, even though they've never met. Uh, he's much more like Pliskin in the book. When they when uh, they come to him, they say the president's gone down. He doesn't say it to like the Secretary of State or whatever, but in his mind, he's saying... Like get a new president. Yeah. Like why we're we gonna go in? Like he's he's of Pliskin's mind. Like who gives a fuck? But then when they've learned about the tapes, it's okay. Even though he doesn't really even care to contribute to this, he he has to. So that's why he comes up with, devises this plan. There's also um, the subplot about his son, right? With, with well, the there's a subplot about his son, but there's also to, to get to the kind of the police state. What happened was all these prisoners were coming back all fucked up with like they were coming back like snake you know from the f- from, from the, the war. war yeah and so we were like what are we going to do with them like they were part of the problem they were the part of the crazies they were part of the mayhem so like let's just put uniforms on them make them police so all these guys who didn't know how to do anything other than kill basically we eliminate the police force and just make one police army, national yeah national national police force and that's who all those guys are they're all that is made up completely of veterans from <laughs> from these wars yeah so that the, there's a lot more about that and how the police guys are all crazy and how they just want to kill the people that basically they talks a lot about you know judge dread style like you know they're the they're the police they're the jury they're the ex in a lot of in more in more cases than not they're the executioner so that's very, up, it sounds very robocop too, yeah you know? sets up this that's all the setup for this <laughs> land the thing about uh Hauk's son is when he he's going to send snake into the prison he says there's somebody in there i want you to if you see him you know can you let me know and he's like yeah what am i going to do go door to door um he's like he's got his name Hulk. he's got the last name tattooed across his fingers if you see him he's like you know I don't I'm not asking you to bring him with you just you know let me know if you see him um that guy later becomes uh I don't I can't recall if they ever actually say that his son or such just that it's implied but basically the thought is that Hulk's son has gone crazy and he's trapped on the island as well do you remember in the scene after the chock full of nuts scene when the crazies are chasing snake he goes up the fire escape into the building he puts the bookcase yeah and then that hand comes around and snake blows that hand off yeah. that's in the book that hand has the the tattoo does, of does snake see that or does or he, he or sees it after see it. like he sees like the fingers oh god <laughs> 
So it's like Mitchum style. It says it on the fingers yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the guy that gets his hand blown off in that scene is in the book, Hauk's son. Oh, Jesus. Um, Part of the Chud people coming out of the Yeah, ground. so I mean, that's the kind of like backstory of, of well, this the whole is a, situation. A great right? example of why we love consulting the novelizations because you'll just learn so much more. That that's I, and then it begs the question: Does like the author himself, does Macquarie, come up with this on his own? I does think he consult they do, with they Carpenter do sometimes. You know, have to come up because what happens if you blanks. you come up with stuff in the. Carpenter's like, I don't like this. is bullshit. This yeah, is stupid. Well, I don't you know, know what I mean? Carpenter like, has a say at that point. Yeah, I wonder if, yeah, I guess you're right. I wonder if it is, like, since it's, con- like, contracted work, if, you know, even though if he comes up with it, you know, I mean, yeah. if, if, I, if I'm the director of a movie and then you're hired to do the novelization and I came up with this character. Yeah. The know, other aspect of it is that it's driven home more, and if you listen to the commentaries and stuff of the movie, Carpenter always says that, like, how can... Pliskin are the same guy. Yeah, that's way more driven home. And even when there's a much more, I told you earlier, there's a much bigger thing where the Secretary of State comes and he explains everything to Hulk, which we don't really see. Yeah, in the movie, he says there's this tape, and he's like, "What's on the tape?" He's like, "Well, do you know anything about nuclear fusion?" He's like, "Never mind." He, he says, and Pliskin has the same. You know, they have the exactly the same response. Like, you know what? I don't need to know. Yeah. Like, okay, whatever. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and, and we we said Hulk's played by the great Lee Van Cleef, and I guess um, when they were casting the movie. Whoever they went to ca- casting, they said, you know, whose face hasn't been seen for a while was Lee Van Cleef. Yeah. And Lee Van Cleef Which was, was an awesome casting. Yeah. I mean, because he, he's, he was a great 50s, 60s character actor. He shows up, like we said, in the spaghetti, two of the three spaghetti westerns. But he made a lot of westerns. I mean, Tons of westerns. Dune, he's in a couple Twilight Zone episodes, which actually might be westerns. He's in, yeah, he's, he's in, in a, a lot, lot of, of great spaghetti westerns that weren't even made by Leone. Yeah, that have just become like that fodder of the 70s. And then uh, he was winding down because I think he passes away in the late. 80s or so so this might be i don't want to say it's one of his well, last roles i think but. the beautiful thing about we talk about fistful uh for a few dollars more a lot as being our favorite of that trilogy the leone trilogy with eastwood i think the great thing about that movie is that like eastwood's not the main character no yeah lee van cleef's the main character <laughs> and uh that's one of the things i really like about that movie i mean it's become like the eastwood trilogy but it's really that is really lee, lee van cleef's movie and not to get off on that, but and then it, it always gets really confusing because you have he shows up as Angel Eyes in the third movie, but is he the same character from the second movie, or is he someone different? Because Eastwood, to me at least, is the same character through the three movies. Yeah, the the man with no name. They call him Blondie. They call him not Tuco. I forget what his name is, but he has a name through each of the movies. But it's not it's not his real name. They just give him like a you know a nickname. But like. Jean-Marie Volonté, who's the bad guy in the first one, dies, but then he shows up as the bad guy in the second. <laughs> fucking one of my favorite performances is how psychotic he is in the second movie yeah, yeah. for a few dollars more. But then you're saying Lee Van Cleef shows up as a as another bounty hunter in the second movie and is tied into the plot, but then he walks off into the sunset at the end of the second movie with Eastwood, and then the third movie shows up and he's kind of the heavy in that movie. Yeah. So is he the same guy, but... You know, I mean, like now I don't think they're really intended to be, like you know, that, you like know, a real trilogy. But you're right; you, you, there's you no know, real way to know. It, you know, it could be that just they're just crossing paths again, and now it's like you know, it's like you know, Boba Fett and Han, Han Solo walk, <laughs> working together. You know, they work together for one. You know, in yeah, the yeah. Christmas special, they work together, and then you know, when they leave, it's like, well, we're not friends anymore. But yeah. there's no, I guess, to say that they aren't connected. There's never any recognition of they know who they are. In, yeah, for, yeah. In, uh, good but vaguely, the point is. Van Cleef, great history, great, great, great actor. You know, he's got a, he's got a, he's he's rocking a left ear, uh, earring in this, which is which they talk about in the book as being that uh, 
that was something that like navy men would would wear an earring to signify that like they survived a sinking ship or something. Oh, really? Uh, in the book, that's, that's what pretty, they say. That's awesome. And he says that, like, that to him, like, that's was what he escaped from. Yeah. When he left, to him, it was like it was a wreck, and so he wears that to kind of signify to him is like his pointing out that he survived something. And then now they cast him, and then I guess they only had like a day or two with him, so they shot all his scenes. And I hear that he had just really injured his knee. But you can't really tell well, when he's it, walking. I don't know if it was just he he injured his knee horseback riding in like a previous movie, and he was always this afraid. Is Lee Van Cleef, yeah, yeah, Lee Van Cleef, and he was always afraid. The scene that he says was the hardest to shoot was when they're walking down the hall and he's giving all this exposition because he was constantly worried that his knee was going to buckle while they were walking. So he had to his his f- focus was split between delivering the lines and doing the movie and like not falling down while they were doing it. There's only a couple instances where you see that he kind of limps and it's like when he gets out of the helicopter and he's like walking away from the helicopter. Yeah, I noticed you see he, that he's favoring his left, yeah, his yeah. left leg. But other than that, you're right. He doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't really, really give him. Know. And I guess his, they said his wife was on set to monitor to make sure he was all right. But then what happened was there's some shit that when they got the dailies back, some of his close-ups were out of focus. Yeah, and then they couldn't they couldn't, they couldn't get him back, so they just kept it. But I didn't. I, I never, don't really notice it as being out of focus either. Yeah, I didn't pick up on it really. Let's well, you know the thing is, you know, uh, technologically, they at the time they just created these new lenses. Like, yeah, what Dean Cundy brings in the DP for this movie. Yeah, Dean Cundy he shot Halloween. Um, I don't think he shot Assault of Precinct Thirteen, but I could be mistaken. Dun 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 dun. dun. <laughs> he shot the Fog. He shot the Thing. He shot Halloween Two. I think he might have shot Halloween 3. And he's freaking distinctive (laughs) as all hell. You can tell it's a Carpenter movie when you see him. Yeah, it's like the visuals are as much Kundi as as, uh, Carpenter. At some point they had a falling out, and I don't know the backstory of that, and that's why they stopped working together. But, uh, you know, Carpenter likes to shoot in that extra wide... 235. Yeah, like Panavision or whatever. And they had just invented these lenses that opened to like a 1.8 or something like that. So basically, film... Film stock, they're shot on film. Film stock has a speed, and the lower the number, like the lower the speed, the more light you need. And then you have a lens that opens, uh, the aperture opens to let in light. Yeah. So the the the, the, the brighter it is, the the, you, the more you close the lens down, and then the more uh, darker it is, the more you want to open it up to get more light as possible in. So you run into a problem, say, if you're shooting this movie at night. You know, if you open the lens all the way, you still might not be able to get a proper exposure that you want. So that's why they do tricks in the old days, like wet the street down so there's more light, like they did in the Warriors. And and film stock throughout the 70s and into the 80s was still fairly slow. I don't know what the technology was. And that's why that it got faster and faster. You see in a lot of exterior scenes in 70s movies where it's you can't make out anything except maybe you know like tail lights or headlights or maybe like. You know, neon signs and everything yeah. else is just because. Or they'll shoot day for night, which yeah. is like they'll shoot it during the day, stop it down, let in less light, and then in post production, like add a blue tint and stop it down even more to try to make so it, it look like night. Yeah, so it's actually daytime, but it looks darker than usual. You've but seen then you see a lot see, in the 70s. You could see like shadows, like you see a lot on television, you know, like, yeah. you know, when they're walking around the back, you know, they're yeah, on like, like the backwoods of Cali- California, you know, it's like it's supposed to be nighttime, but it's clearly so the, the sun. O- so the only reason, reason this movie could have gotten made is because these new lenses were invented that would open up wide enough to let in light because they didn't have the time the money to light like these streets in in East St. Louis. So they would wet down the street when they could, and they would just throw up some lights to create like a, 
like a blue hue that lights some fires. Well, they said that these lenses really afforded them. They can use sources of light that they've never been able to use before. So there's scenes when they're underground where like the source of the light in the scene is a fire. Yeah. And that's the only thing, you know, so they were able to use that as a, a light source because prior to that, you couldn't be able to get a proper exposure. Yeah. So, but in relation to the focus, what happens is when you, the less light you use, like the less field of focus or whatever. So they were shot the movie with, a with, you know, not a lot of light. They use these lenses to open up the aperture so that they could shoot with very low light. But the problem is you focus is very unforgiving. Yes. And if you're even just a little bit off, more light you have, the more you close the lens, the aperture, like the more things are just in focus. So that's one of the reasons these lenses were tricky. And so apparently in that scene between Lee Van Cleef and Kurt Russell, there was a, a, some out of focus close-ups with Lee Van Cleef, the carpenter says he was stuck using, but I agree, I don't notice it so much. I, you, I, you do notice the focus issues where, you know, um, the, another thing that was invented that Kundi just came out was the Panaglide Steadicam. So a lot of the stuff they shot, like on Steady, there's a scene when you see, like, say, them running up to yeah. the end of the alley, and then Borgnine's cab comes up, and he comes out. You can tell the focal issues, because right, they hit the mark, and the, right when they hit the mark, say, Borgnine will deliver his line, you can say he comes in focus, but yeah. also... The scenes where they're underground and and uh, they're using the steady cam and Kurt Russell's using the gun to point his way, you can see the barrel of the guns out of focus. It's yeah, sometimes yeah. there's another scene where he's like, I think when he wakes up and he's he his air, the, you get the arrow through the thigh and he's looking around like like the edge of his pants are out of focus and it's like <laughs> wow like what do you like what kind of lens are they using that like you know just yeah. the, the, his legs out of focus but he's in focus. Well, so you also can see. a lot of that has to do also with the that, like Panavision or whatever like that extra wide probably some kind of anamorphic yeah thing. Um, so yeah, along with these lenses, that they use this Panaglide Steadicam, which is the which he used in shots. Halloween. Yeah. Kind of became famous because of Halloween and um, a movie that nobody likes, but Exorcist Two, the Heretic, yeah. also uses a Panaglide in a very effective way, actually. Uh, but Steadicam Panaglides, two different companies making similar technology. They it was still new. I mean, Rocky used it. That was one of the really early ver- uses was in Rocky when he's running through the city, runs up the stairs. I forget the guy's name who invented it because a friend of mine who's a he's now a Steadicam uh operator who's really good. He does uh primetime shows. He he's met the guy and he's yeah. hung out with him. Shining is another like, The Shining really people so, usually throw that as an example like yeah. a bar like a this like a significant early use but this is like a year what a year after the shining Shining's yeah. like 80 you know and then you know you get a lot of like that the palma one take with steady cam and you look at like an example in goodfellas of them you know in that one take they go through the kitchen yeah. to get to the you know so you get a lot much, of that kind you know, of stuff yeah stuff 10 later. years later yeah but you get a lot of you afford yourself longer takes or more like almost plays you can do a lot of more with the yeah. steady cam movement and stuff this movie to me is like such a great example of making uh making use of limited resources <laughs> totally and then you know uh he brings in again Tom Atkins who rounds out the cast of the police yeah, because Tom Atkins had Remy. worked on him uh he'd worked just with him in the fog yeah and, and like it, I said Cyphers who plays like the secretary of state only has a few scenes doesn't say a whole lot said he's he's the sheriff at halloween yeah he's in the fog and also isn't the tech i recognize the lab technician who puts the stuff into snakes um neck 
He yeah. looks like he's is he a technician from like Halloween two or something? He might be. He I also like recognize somebody. the like the black guy who's like David fourteen. We don't. There's a jet coming in. We, yeah. we're trying to hail him. He really looks familiar to me, but I can't pinpoint what movie. I know. I don't know. I don't necessarily think it's a Carpenter movie. Yeah, but it's he's a he's a familiar face to me as well. And like I said, the like the the terrorist activist person that takes over Air Force One. She's the, she plays the nurse, Donald Pleasance's like kind of partner in Halloween's one and two. Oh, it's when he's driving the station wagon. Or yeah, yeah, when they pull up, and then in Halloween two, she's the one that's like walking around. They have Sam Hain. <laughs> you know, when they go to the school, she plays a <laughs> bigger part. She ended up marrying. She ended up marrying somebody. Ah, oh, he won when you yeah, we you know that. something, but you don't know the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's now the story of my oh, life. Oh, she ended up marrying really. the director of Halloween Two, I think, Rick Rosenthal. Oh, really? I don't know if they're still married, but I, I know it's, they ended up getting married. Let's hope point. so. Let's hope that they're still married. So then, so we get into the uh, the prison, and then we see. Um, that character at the he meets at the chock full of nuts, which in the book I guess her name is Maureen, but she is never billed in the movie. Yeah, and that's his that's uh, Kurt Russell's first wife at the time, and, and they, they just, just had a baby. Boston, Boston, I think was the he, kid's name. Oh yeah, maybe Boston uh, Russell, and uh, yeah, her name is Susan Hoobly. Yeah. And um, Harry Dean Stanton comes up next. Great cast, great like ensemble. Yeah, Harry Dean's amazing too. You know, in that playing that role, and then you, the more of that backstory with that, you know, Nick Castle interjecting that humor with Harold. You know, don't call me Harold. You know, like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. And Adrian Barbeau at the time, uh, she was married to Carpenter, looking hot as balls as always. And she, you know, yeah, she I shows up in there. When they got divorced, because they were kind of like on their honeymoon when they made the fog. She's a I, like I love Adrian Barbeau. But there is this weird thing where she like ages like significantly in a short amount of time. Yeah, because she's like hot as balls in fucking the fog. Yeah, and or she, even in the seventies, like when she's in Maud, like I forget she's in that. You know, she had like a career in television. Yeah, yeah. And then she went to that TV movie, someone to watch over me, the Carpenter TV movie, which is really good. That's after Halloween, but before Elvis. Yeah, and then maybe they met on that. I don't know. And then, but if you look at her from the fog. To like swamp thing, yeah, which is only like three or four years. It's like she looks like she's aged like ten years, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. like in like a matter of no maybe time. She has uh, married to him, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe all that, all that cigarette yeah. smoke and <laughs> just doing it whiskey. to him. You know? oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs> just will you put will you put the cigarette? Will you I open mean, a window? St- she still looks great in the swamp thing. I'm yeah. not saying it's just like it's like the same thing happened with Connery. Like if you look at the way Connery looked in uh, Goldfinger. Dr. No Goldfinger to, to even Thunderball, which is just like the third movie. There's like a significant, like he looks like he got a lot older in just like a year or two. Yeah. yeah. Something, they hit like a, there's like a benchmark. <laughs> oh, they, I mean, you see that a lot of times with like, I remember Leslie Nielsen. And, and by reached. the way, Adrian Barbo, this is like what, 30 years later, 40 years later. She still looks good. Oh, of course. Yeah, uh, she, I'm just she, saying it. So it's, I'm not, it's not like. She was back to television recently. She had a TV show. I'm not complaining, just, but I'm just saying there's like, just if you look between those two movies, I don't know if it's the way they, they're lit. Yeah. She also has like that fro thing going, like that. Yeah, that perm, <laughs> that perm thing going on in Swamp Thing, and in this movie too. Um, but cer- certain people just they don't seem like. I remember Leslie Nielsen for me never seemed to age, and then you know, prior to him passing away, yeah. it just like he turned a corner and he was older all of a sudden. It's like Jesus. So like a lot of people who 
like a, a Sean Connery who like I've, since like the Untouchables until like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen didn't to me age like a day. Yeah. You know, it's like Ed Harris, like he's keeping that picture in a vault. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you don't know all of a sudden, and then all of a sudden he's old. You're like, oh my gosh. Um, and then you have uh, Borgnine shows up to his cabbie, yeah. um, who I guess Nick Castle said he he came up with the idea of cabbie. I think, I think Nick Castle came up with the idea of cabbie, a guy who was a New York cab driver. Uh, you know he's been driving this cab since before it was a prison. Yeah, and he's still still doing it now. Uh, I don't know if he talks about it in the movie, but in the or if it's in the book. But he talk, he tells Pliskin basically that he was. He's like I've been driving the same exact cab. Basically, what he did was he uh, when he when they when they left New York when people were getting out of New York he like hit it so he like parked it somewhere and hit it and then when he got put back in New York he just went back to it and Sweet. it was still there. Yeah, um, I'm a big Borgnine fan. I read we his talk, biography. We talk about Borgnine and the black hole. The cast. black hole. Yeah, and uh, he talks about in his biography that he got a call from Carpenter and said, "I got a part for you. Will you come meet me for lunch?" And they had lunch together, and he gave him the script, and he read the script, and Borgnine loved it, and he goes, "You know," and Carpenter goes, "I have a role for you in mind in this," and then he goes, "Well, the only one I'd really be interested in is playing is the Lee Van Cleef character," and they're like, "No, we've already cast that." He's like, well, I don't know who you'd want me. He's like, well, I want you to play Cabby. And he's like, why would you want me to play Cabby? It's like, just, you know, would you take it? He's like, yeah, sure, I'll work with it. It'll be great. So he does it. He loves it. And he has this, he says he kind of has this innocence about the role, the character that he kind of, that's how he kind of attacks it, you know, like, and I guess in the movie, they kind of say he's kind of like a, he, he's like not a storyteller, but he's the person who like links everyone together. I know know everybody. Yeah. So Borgnine says he doesn't realize really until they, they finish the movie uh, and he goes to a screening when they're screening it, and he says when he's in this watching it with a, with the, either the test audience or the first screening, he says the part when Cabby dies, everybody collectively in the audience goes, oh. So he says, oh, he realized that like people like he's one of the only people people care for in the movie. For yeah, well, he he's the only one that seems likable. Yeah, he's not really. <laughs> I mean, aside from like him taking off when the Duke shows up. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's not. You know, he doesn't really. You know bust anybody's chops or yeah, you know, yeah. You know. he seems like a good guy He's, and it's uh, hilarious like you know when i love his i mean i do that all the time when you when you when he makes his first appearance that dance he's like that dance <laughs> like, like you know i love that and then like you know like i said to, that's that's a big one of the my funniest throwaway lines is like wait till i tell eddie you know yeah, like yeah. The, like the thing with with um with snake plissken when he's with uh Harry Dean Stanton, he's like, you know, remember Fresno Bob? Yeah. What they, they, who's Fresno Bob? I want to know. So there's a little bit <laughs> oh, of they did, they do. just a tiny bit in the book. They were uh, robbing something and uh, and the and brain, Harold was leaving, uh, Harry Dean Stanton's character was the getaway car and Fre- he and Fresno Bob got back and uh, brain had left. Harry Dean Stanton's character left them stranded Snake, they talk about how Snake's named Snake because he can slither out of tough situations. That's how he got the name Snake. So, and, they, and they often refer to him in the book as the Snake. Like, the Snake managed to slither away, but Fresno Bob didn't. And, when the, the, and they call the, the police force Black Bellies. <clears throat> when the Black Bellies arrive, they skinned, they skinned Fresno Bob alive. Oh, my God. Because the police, I was telling you, honest, the police are crazy, too. Because they, they come back from the war, from all this gas, this chemical warfare. So the, uh, the majority of the police force is all crazy. So that's what happened to Fresno Bob, is he got skinned alive. That's terrible. Um, who else we have in the cast? We have um, the great Isaac Hayes shows up Isaac as the Hayes Duke. Isaac Hayes shows up as the Duke. Uh, A number one. <laughs> he's the Duke, A number one. 
Isaac Hayes talks about how his favorite thing about making the movie was Ernest Borgnine. Yeah. And how uh, he would love to send their lunch and stuff, sit around and Ernest Borgnine would tell everybody stories about Hollywood and his career and um, loved loved talking to Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, and I, and uh, and he loved Donald Pleasance too, because he th- who plays the president. Yeah, because he says that there was when you'd be he would feed him lines off camera, and he'd be so funny he'd be laughing about stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, like uh, Donald Pleasance ended up loving playing this character. I think a lot of people kind of overlook the one of the great things about this movie is that it's kind of tongue in cheek. I mean, yeah. there is a lot of comedy. We talk about Nick Castle bringing that element, but uh, Pleasance loved playing the. He saw the humor in the president character and he loved playing it um i think we talk about maybe in halloween 2 what some other pleasance movie we did um i think we mentioned it where pleasance was a pow yeah pleasance um he uh went to be an actor in 39 and then was joined the he was when the war was declared he wanted to be like a, a conscientious objector but then when they started the blitzkrieg started bombing london he signed up and he went into the royal air force and he was an aircraft wireless operator uh, on the uh, 166 squadron of bombers and he was in a lancaster ne112 over france and he got shot down uh in a bomber and then he became a pow at uh, uh stalig luf one it was called and he was in there with a lot of other POWs, French, American, and British, which is ironic because he goes on to be in The Great Escape, which is yeah. you know about um, a POW camp. And uh, he says that's what you're alluding to is he took some of his dealings with the um, German Nazi soldiers into the performance here of him yeah. being a prisoner of war. Uh, with the with the president, you know, and Pleasance being British, yeah. So it's it's weird because people they had a backstory to explain away. Well, where, Pleasance created a backstory, yeah. For, well, his, for him but, to play, but then when you listen to it, I was expecting to hear a British accent, but it's sometimes yeah. he doesn't have a British accent, yeah. so I didn't know if he decided to scruff it and just try to do an American accent, or if he if it comes out that he's you know. So what I mean? Pleasance created some kind of backstory where basically <laughs> Reagan and Margaret Thatcher have a love child. <laughs> it was something happened and. In a nutshell, basically, the United States during these wars becomes a colony of Britain again. Yeah. And that's why he's kind of eligible to be president. Yeah, I heard something, something like they, they thought of an idea where, or maybe Carpenter approached Pleasance where it's like Donald, uh, R- Ronald Reagan and Thatcher become close and he's kind of, he, he's, what do you call that? He becomes a sir or a duke, I forget what you call that, yeah. a lord. And then they have a child, and the child ends up being, you know, the Donald Pleasant's character, and that's why he's able well, to Well, I mean, have, that, just time-wise, that wouldn't. Because we're yeah, that wouldn't work at all. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if maybe they mean in some sort of weird future. I don't yeah, know what, you yeah. know. Um, and he's great in this. And I, it was funny, because as a child, I always got him confused with Eddie Albert's role in Dreamscape. Mm-hmm. He plays the president. So I used to always get him confused if it was Eddie Albert who's the president in this movie or Donald Pleasance or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Because Eddie Albert plays an awesome role as the president in Dreamscape because that's what that plot's about, you know. Uh, Pleasance, great. A Carpenter, Carpenter staple obviously played Dr. Loomis in the Halloween movies. Yeah. Um, and, he, and you said he had to do a lot of convincing Carpenter to get Pleasance to play this. Because he, Carpenter, I mean, Pleasant the First didn't really want it. Yeah, he didn't really get why he wanted him to play it. But ultimately, um, and also there's the, I think the British thing probably was like, <laughs> how do I get around? <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. But ultimately, Carpenter did talk Pleasant to do it, and Pleasant ended up really liking the character, kind of saw 
a chance to be kind of funny in some way. Yeah, make it's fun so, of like the capitalist kind of. Because yeah, at the end, you get it's that. It's also like when 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 Herdine Stanton and Jerry Barbeau go in and they talk for Romero. Oh, well, Duke wants us to come in, and they go in. He's got like the blonde wig on. <laughs> We just never really uh, explain what's going explained. on. There. It's just there's a lot of funny things and and uh, the character of Romero, Frank Doubleday, when they went in the train station and Pliskin saves it's the rescue of Pleasance, and then they kind of get double crossed by Brain, the thigh, yeah, and the Brain and uh, and Maggie, who's played by Adrian Barbeau, they come out and I think the Duke is with them, but then Frank Doubleday, who plays Romero, uh. He's like holding on to part of the train. He just kind of like swings in with like his hand over yeah. his eyes, like looking, he's trying to look at this. Out. And he just kind of like freezes there. Such an odd performance. He does. Frank Doubleday in this movie does such amazing stuff that I'm surprised Carpenter let him get away with it. It was probably because they'd worked together, so he had a level of comfortability. But like every scene, he steals it by just doing yeah. something that's minimal, but like, you know, over the top, but it works. Well, even in the. That- like the opening scene, he goes, ha! Ah! <laughs> awesome. Later on, when he like when he when when uh, like you're saying right there, he swings in, and then like Isaac Hayes says to wait here, and they start walking away. Doubleday never makes eye contact or turns his head, but he points at him like the wait. Yeah, so yeah. it's like he does all these things, and it's kind of like a letdown for me that he dies in such a way because I want to see more of his character. Yeah, he also that that first scene with Lee Van Cleef at the, at the beginning of the movie where he's telling him like you're gonna you he know thirty seconds yeah. leave, he dies, he dies. He dies. Like before he starts, he's standing there in front of Liam McKeith, and then he looks down, like like an actor, like okay, like I gotta get into character almost. <laughs> and then he he looks down for a second, for like a whole beat, and then he just like looks up and starts talking. It's yeah. like he's like either thinking what to say or just like get like getting into character. And he's got that laugh too, which is kind of eerie. Which you know, like again, it kind of shows up with the black guy and RoboCop has like a kind of maniacal. Well, laugh. he's the biggest example of. Like an actual character in the movie being quote unquote like one of the crazies, and it's you know? it's but it's it's such a great I, like you know it's one of those things where you remember it's almost like um, David Patrick Kelly in the Warriors. You remember him for being so good yeah, in yeah. such a small role. Where I think David Patrick Kelly's role as Luther is a little more sizable in the Warriors, but Doubleday in this is just so. Is he still alive? I I, th- I hope so. I don't yeah, because you don't know a lot of these. But just like there's just certain performances that I don't even know if good's the word, but yeah. like the decisions are so unique that they're yeah. just like completely. And it's it also it's I think it's a trust between the director and the actor because if the act, director doesn't like what he's doing, you can tell him stop. Yeah, and he's completely not a stealing guy scenes. That would let somebody get away with stuff. Yeah, Carpenter's definitely seems like the kind of guy that if he didn't like something, guy would Frank Doubleday would have known about it. Yeah. So um, and then uh, I don't then the they, they hire when they end up arresting or they capture um, Snake. They end up getting this real uh, wrestler to fight him. Ox Baker yeah. was this guy's name. Play and slag. Yeah. And, and so they, because they had the idea of what you shot. They said they shot in the St. Louis train station yeah. that they wanted to have like, they wanted to put like Snake through the riggers and see what he can handle and stuff. So they, the idea was to have like this big fight in Madison Square Garden. So they, found a train station to double it and they put the biggest guy they could find cast him in this yeah in this. it was a real professional wrestler and if you look if you look up this guy ox baker he that that was like his shtick was the eyebrows and that big i don't know what you call those like freaking chops that are like yeah, yeah. whatever they are and that was his shtick and he's crazy looking and he's like he was a big villain for like a couple decades on the wrestling scene in the in, in the in the actual movie the he passed away in 2014 
in the actual movie, the scene's not very long. No. In the book, it goes on for a really long time. And then there's, like, parallel action. It cuts away to, I think, like, Maggie and Brain. Or trying to get the president And then out. comes back to the fight. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, very long sequence. And I love when he's walking into, like, the, the quote-unquote arena. He's, like, uh, he's, like, you know, they describe that it it's... Uh, that it smells, that the place smells, and it said it sm- it's the it reeks of of sweat and belly gas. <laughs> <laughs> so people are just carpet bombing wherever they're walking around. <laughs> um, let's see, uh, and then uh, there's a uh, interview that somebody did with Kurt Russell recently, where he's um, he was in Cape Town for a film festival, so maybe he was promoting. Um, uh, Hateful Eight Hateful Eight or that and, other, maybe that other western he was in recently around yeah, the same time uh, which I still haven't seen yet that just reminded me for Christ's sake you know, the other one now. I hear is really good Bone Tomahawk you're talking about the other one I hear is really good is that one Ty West just made with I think Ethan Hawke and John Travolta oh I don't know that one I'll have to look it it's up it's somewhat recent western yeah but uh, I like Ty West so yeah and the Jeff Grace who's interviewed in my book did the music for it and I hear the soundtrack's really great too check that out good plug right there <laughs> Um, I wish I knew the name. <laughs> we don't know the name, but we'll leave you to decide. Go ask the one puzzle piece. I won't tell you. We'll give you all the clues except that. Um, but they're, they're in, the guy's interviewing Kurt Russell. And Kurt Russell talks about where he's. He said like he was on this exercise routine, and he says he was. Uh, you know, him and Isaac Hayes are hanging out. And Isaac Hayes was always like at night was saying like you know when you wake up in the morning, call me. And we'll go work out together. So he's like, all right. So he get up in the morning, and he he ring Isaac Hayes' room, and he would ring and ring and ring, and finally he get. Like, <laughs> and he's like, hey, hey, you want me to call you back in five minutes? No, man. <laughs> so then they would go, they'd go and exercise together, but he said it was yeah. a great work. He said it was the Isaac deepest Hayes. voice ever, like when he, when he would answer the phone, because the whole night of shooting. Because most of this movie, almost all yeah. of this movie takes place at night. So they would shoot from sundown to sun up. Carpenter talks about when they shot in St. Louis, like he didn't see the sunlight. He didn't see the day, you know, the sun and for weeks because he would basically just sleep the entire day away or, or be like shuttled off to, you know, go watch dailies in some dark room if it was day. Um, so yeah, and, and he ends up having a great role in this because he was acting a bit in the seventies doing like exploitation movies. Yeah, but his, he didn't act you know, in a whole lot. And uh, no, he was like a Truck Turner. I don't know what year Truck was, Turner is. He's, he's really in, good in this. Yeah, I mean, he makes you the one of my favorite shots in the movie is when we oh, get he to, steps in the frame. He steps. There's that, and there's also like at the end when they're driving, and like he's chasing them across the bridge. Oh, that's just crazy. Yeah, he's, he's like he's like he's, he's, got, he's, the, got, that, he's got this eye twitch that he does a lot in the movie. <laughs> he has like this eye twitch that he created for the character in Carpenter. Says he just he wanted to do it and so, <laughs> so I let him do it and it's cool because uh, if if you do research into this that people talk about the Cadillac um, I think it's like a Fleetwood that car and then they, they reference the uh, the Ford LTD station wagon Squire that they that had the bars around it that they commandeered to try to get away yeah. those two cars like the, the Cadillac with the with the chandeliers on the end have become like the like the foot stones for this renaissance of you know remember like the the souping up your ride kind of stuff? yeah like yeah. that subculture of completely decking your car out those two were cited as like the, the 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 station wagon and the cadillac are like the grandfathers of you know i don't know who owns those cars now because it's because especially the cadillac when it's driving then it's like when he gets out of the car oh, yeah, you know the yeah, hydraulics yeah and, and all that kind of they they cite those as like you know when you're souping up your cars that they're like you know they, they trace it back to escape from New yeah, York yeah. for whatever reason because I don't know prior to that I mean aside from like you get into like 
Mad Max, but I don't know what other movies you have where like cars are souped up for like post-apocalyptic stuff, as opposed to like you change a car to be futuristic, like the Batmobile. Say, I don't you know? remember we talked about. There's a great thing where I heard George, George Miller, I think, in relation to specifically Road Warrior. I don't know if we talked about it ever. I can't imagine where it got mentioned, but he talks about how the reason why uh, you know those the cars were so souped up was one for intimidation. You know, if you live in that kind of world, you want something that's kind of intimidating. But his his thought process was that even in a world where you it's a post apocalyptic and you have nothing, that doesn't kill the creative artistic spirit of somebody. <laughs> so they would if the only thing you really owned was this car and you would want it to be an expression of you. So they would so his thought process was they would try to make the cars kind of an artistic expression. Because just because you have nothing doesn't mean that part of humanity dies it's weird and i was like never thought of it that way but when he explained it i was like yeah that makes a lot of sense it's like when you get to fury road it's like those cars are such a departure from like road warrior and mad max it's like those are it's like a bad dream a nightmare of because those cars are so crazy and, <laughs> and fury road it's almost like yeah, their yeah. dream because they're so conceptually done where there's like four cadillac bodies on top together stacked or whatever they're just so out there it's just like yeah, yeah. it's like you know it's like it's like that idea on like freaking speed um so you're talking about that end scene too when when, when isaac is crossing the the bridge i had heard that jj uh, abrams has a connection to this movie because supposedly his father worked in the industry behind the scenes and when there was a screening jj abrams supposedly well saw a screening of this movie and he was the one in urban legend to to ask Carpenter or tell his dad to tell Carpenter that it was never clear Adrian Barbo getting killed. Oh, to me, I never heard. That. I mean, I heard that that was that's why they shot. They yeah, shot but I, shot. to me, it's like you. I, I what we're about to say is I've heard that for years. But when you we watch the movie, clearly she gets killed. She gets freaking T bone. You know, I know. But the way it's framed, I can you see know, people not not clear. see her get hit. Oh, because I you see her shooting, it's like bang, and she gets killed. But then what happens is that they they didn't they realize when they left the location they didn't have a shot of her laying dead. So yeah, we never actually saw her dead. We saw her get by, hit by the car, but we never saw her dead. So apparently, audience and and according to this story, JJ Abrams, yeah, JJ Abrams <laughs> told his father, which is like you know okay. Um, so they went, of course they weren't there anymore. So they ended up shooting this pickup shot in Adrian Barbeau and John Carpenter's garage. Yeah. They just put her under the, the hood of a car. Threw some blood on her over on like the cement of the, of their garage floor. And they got that shot of her just laying there dead and she's, you know, and it's, it's, it's really touching that at the end when Harry Dean Stanton dies, that she, you know, she's so yeah, upset yeah. that he brain gets killed. He gets, you know, he steps on a mine. There's a lot more in the book that, uh, snake, is infatuated with Maggie. I mean, it's a little you get bit... A, yeah, get a couple looks from the two yeah, of them. Yeah, but it was more about, like, the way they describe her, and the, you totally get that... Uh, you know, the thing with Snake and the girl in uh, The Chuck Full of Nuts, it's like, he didn't want to kiss her because, like, Snake doesn't... At this point, Snake doesn't care about that. You know, like... Like, like we said, Snake doesn't care about anything, even sex, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, but the, so the only person that he actually has kind of affection for is ends up being Maggie. Maggie. He he ends up developing a little bit of. A well, you crush get that near her. the end. He's like, "Come on, let's go!" But then yeah, he doesn't yeah. question when she she doesn't really her decisions made yeah. when she just puts her hand out for the gun. He knows, so he's it's like he's all about the business. He yeah. realizes her mind, so he's just no point of even. It but goes into his philosophy. Yeah, yeah. But because of book, you have to you know you get 
yeah. more of characterization and like that, you know. So it's even that's even you get sadder to hear than, what they're thinking. You know that he's even that's even more of a like a you know it's like a little swan song. Of, yeah, you yeah. know that the, the the love that that ends up getting away. Um, now the line in the movie that I I use periodically in my life to a couple people were like you know I thought you were dead. They allude to there was a 1971 John Wayne movie called Big Jake, and in it, he's, they say that to Big Jake, I thought you were dead through the movie. Yeah. So they say that might be where, since Carpenter's a big John Wayne fan, he got that. But I think that's hilarious every time. And then they say also that every person who says that the Pliskin ends up dying. I don't know if that's just a coincidence, huh. you know. But uh, that's the running gag in the movie. Even when Isaac Hayes knocks him out, I thought you, I heard you were dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it's a, it's a great device because... Uh, it's like rep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like he's legend. You yeah. know, like everybody knows who's even Steve inside Plissken the prison. You know, it like, gives, it gives backstory that we don't need. You don't need to fill in. Yeah, yeah. It lets us know that even more about Snake than you know anything. Like yeah. like the one line about you flew the the glider over Leningrad. That's yeah. uh, like that's, it, it says so much. Yeah, exactly. it's such a succinct line, but it says so much. What a whole the page fact of that everybody's like Snake Plissken. I thought you were dead. <laughs> It one lets well, I wonder, the audience know the, that everybody knows who he is. He's famous. He's from the legend. novelization. You think that means because of the Gulf Fire Leningrad thing? They oh, think maybe. he's dead. I don't know. You know, I mean, or I wonder why, or any other yeah. heists that he's done since then. So he's got, he's done. Th- so when he comes out of the, when he wakes up with his eye messed up and Taylor sees him, they they do a series of heists, not just one. He starts becoming a. A bank robber, or a, uh, you know, they don't just they pull don't one. get into like how many, but we know that he, he they, we know that bank robbery at the beginning of the movie they got cut out, yeah, with Taylor, and we know that he there was some kind of heist that he pulled off with the brain. Oh, yeah, you're Stan. right, you have so, Fresno Bob with more Fresno Bob, <laughs> more Fresno Bob. <laughs> I want to meet Eddie and I want to know what happened to Fresno Bob. So we know that there's at least two. That's true, okay. Uh, how about the score? Great oh. minimalistic, you know, meta. It's like we keep throwing that word meta around, but it's like... Yeah, this is the first time Carpenter works with Alan Howarth. Yeah. Alan Howarth worked with the editor of this movie, the picture editor, Tom Ramsey, Todd Ramsey, um, either on Star Trek The Motion Picture or Battle Beyond the Stars. I can't remember if Battle Beyond the Stars was before Escape from New York. And but we he talk knows about Tom- Howarth a lot in the in Season of the Witch, Halloween 3. Yeah, and uh, I, I interviewed Howarth really in depth in in my book score to death so uh alan uh alan was in sound effects alan did this the sound effects for the enterprise for the first six movies special sound effects is what they call them back then sound effects that you couldn't get in foley something that you can't record yeah you have to create like the sound of the warp drive the sound of the the transporter uh so he was that's what he did because he was into synths and stuff did he, he end up doing that then the next generations did he do the score i don't for think that? he did those okay no i'm thinking of jay chataway jay chataway did a lot yeah, of music yeah, yeah. for all the, the next generation yeah. on series who did the music for uh maniac um but so carpenter had i don't know if it's a falling out but something happened and the guy he was working with on halloween in the fog and assault of precinct 13 who was basically a technician uh couldn't do Escape from New York, or he wanted to work with somebody else. Todd Ramsey, the editor, was like, you know what? You should meet this guy, Alan. He's all into synths. He's a musician. And so uh, Carpenter came over to his house in Glendale. They shot the shit. Uh, Alan played some stuff for him, showed his equipment, and Carpenter's like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> That's it. You know, that, that and, was his audition. Uh, and uh, so that was it. And so 
Is that not to get down another take a left turn because we're getting up in the cast? Yeah, yeah. But Was that the person's house? Whose house did you go over and you got to like look at equipment? We talked about that in the side cast of your trip to California. Oh, that was uh, Nathan Barr, who's okay. a much younger guy. Okay, um, he invented like that one, like a cello, this weird cello yeah, and yeah. stuff. He does the he did the music for like Hostel, and he did all the music for the Insidious. Uh, he didn't do Insidious. That was Joseph. But anyway, so uh, Joseph Bashara. Yeah, Joseph yeah. Bashara, and. Uh, it all jumbles together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. It's all the same shit. Yeah. Uh, so uh, basically how it worked was Carpenter, they shot the movie. Carpenter did, does the, his own music. Uh, Alan says they worked basically from the beginning to end. So the first thing they actually scored was the bank robbery scene. Uh, Which they, is a little different because it's a little more upbeat because they want to keep that pace yeah. of a robbery. So if you listen to that score, it has a lot of stuff that goes and then unused in the in the yeah. re- regular theatrical cut. And according to Alan, the way they worked, especially in the beginning, was Car- it's Carpenter's score. Carpenter would come in and they would improvise over picture. And this is the first time Carpenter actually plays to picture. Because before that, he was like, I need three minutes of this, three minutes of that. There was, it wasn't like they were working at, you know a big studio where there was a soundstage <laughs> with a projection. Uh, but Alan says, hey, you know, like... It's the early 80s. What if you just get a video dub of the movie and we can score to the video dub? So that's the first time. And and uh, Alan, I think, says that Carpenter called that like the electronic com- uh, coloring book or something. And uh, that notion. The electronic of, coloring book. I think that that's what he calls it. You have to check my book, score to death, <laughs> to find out if I'm right. Make <laughs> me laugh. I'll cough up a lung. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So Carpenter would do the first pass, come up with a lot of the melodies, very improvisational the way Carpenter works. He would watch and play, and if he liked it, he'd keep it. If not, it wasn't like some of these other guys who have music always going on. He would watch, play, and then Alan's job was, one, he was the sound technician. Like He ran all the synths. Back then, you had to tune them Hmm. and stuff to get certain sounds. Uh, And then he would would record everything, and then Alan would sometimes go in and add other layers of synth over what Carpenter had done. And so they had a very, uh, they had a working relationship from fog all the way till maybe they live or Prince of darkness, whichever movie came last. So they made like seven movies together or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then Carpenter into the nineties started to work with other people, but, uh, Alan's gone on to score other things and still works a lot in, sound design he did sound design for a lot of things hunt for out october <laughs> you yeah. know he worked on poltergeist and sound in the in the tech in uh post-production sound raiders of the lost ark army of darkness he was the sound supervisor uh so alan has a fascinating career but he's best known for his work with carpenter and it all started with this movie well it's very memorable to score it's very much like you you know you have like assault on precinct 13 has its its main theme and so does halloween and then the thing does and this one does too it's very you know and especially for carpenter it's very unique because it's not a horror movie there's something you know there's there is something heroic about it even though it's not like the big orchestral yeah you know it's minimal it's it's very minimal but it's still like yeah, it's 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 there. It's awesome. And, and it's, Carpenter during his tour would open the show with the theme from Escape from New York. It's awesome, like on a Hammond B three organ or something. Like. Uh, special effects wise, big deal. Um, the people that oh, did geez, the visual yeah. effects was uh, New World Pictures, who was Corman's company. <laughs> Corman's company was like an all in one 
you know, studio. Yeah. So he had an effects team. And, and because they worked with Corman, they knew how to work on a low budget. And so, the Carpenter had an issue where he didn't have a lot of money. So he's like, I need to have all these effects like New York City stuff. Yeah. So the brothers, Dennis and Robert Skotach, I think they were running the thing at the time. The All the miniature stuff, which I think still works great. It's amazing that all that stuff is miniature. like The, 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 the city, s- because they didn't shoot in New York City. Because one... You couldn't get New York City to shut all the lights off, yeah. <laughs> you know, for a shot. So they had to do it all in miniature. So the glider going in and all that stuff. Well, was- I didn't know that 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 shot of of when Pliskin's in the glider and he's looking through his monitor bank, and it's supposed to be three D animation, like through, yeah. through the, that we it can didn't do exist easily. anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't have I mean, it, it just yet. at that point. So, so all the stuff you'd be able to do today with with computerized, you know, three D models, they actually made th- models and they just painted it but put like like clay tape and they like use the black light it yeah they like- basically painted the the scape of new york you know their miniature black and then they edged it out with like reflective tape shined a black light on it so that it, it looks like so you get those lines so you get like that primitive so it's actually a practical yeah. uh set that they're that they're putting the camera through that it makes it look like it's a computer and then at the beginning uh, the only stuff that they say they shot in New York City is the the Liberty Island stuff that they say they're Which is the, only for about t- two seconds. Yeah, in the movie. and they say they're the first and maybe only, maybe not the only, but they're the first company to be able to shoot on Liberty Island at night. Yeah, uh, and because also was some kind of like bomb attempt or something. Yeah, a couple weeks that. earlier, and they, so you get the pan down of the uh, the Statue of Liberty, and they do that cool shot where Tom Atkins walks into the truck and comes out the other side and they're like, you know, they're, and when they, when they come out the other side, it's another, they're in LA, <laughs> <laughs> they're in LA at the dam where the, where Greece had the grease lightning sting and the Terminator yeah, yeah, yeah. goes after the T-1000 after the, uh, John Connor. Uh, but uh, yeah, the effects great. I love the miniatures. The only thing that's a little hokey is when the, the glider falls off. Oh yeah. The t- mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Kinda, but and, aside from that, like them, and, the glider landing on the, and, the, the, the and even the Stokatch or Scotatch brothers who were running, even they said like, we really wanted to do more. That just wasn't enough. Yeah. There wasn't enough. But I mean, for effective, what they did was, you know, the, the, uh, aside from the miniature work too, they actually used like, um, uh, matte painting and they used a piece of glass. So like the scene when, like you're saying, when the, when the, they're dropping food in central park, that, all that back stuff is actually the old school where you put a piece of glass up. Well, what happened you know, with that scene, I mean, you see, and they paint it. You see a lot of that painting and James Cameron was actually the guy that did all those matte paintings. But in that particular scene, because he was working, you actually don't see it because what happened was James Cameron did a whole New York skyline in the park. And then they realized that the helicopter was going to land behind the glass. <laughs> So they ended up, unfortunately, not being able to. You see shots of it, like screen grabs of it, in the park, and you see like the you know, yeah. It, there's a shot when you see the helicopters first coming in. There's you could see like the the dilapidated because they must have they put the you know through the glass yeah. right where the helicopters. But yeah, once they get to a certain point, they'll start to land. It'll ruin the effect because it'll go right in front yeah. of or behind the. the so glass. unfortunately, that was there's a big there's a big there's a big piece of glass yeah. painting that uh, Cameron spent however much time yeah. on that they couldn't use. But you see that you see a lot of the, his 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 work uh, throughout the yeah. And there's the there's movie. like there's stills of him working on set of like doing the glider stuff on the twin towers and stuff because he was working for Corman at the time because he would just doing the Piranha movies and yeah. it was right before he moved away into Terminator. So that's pretty interesting to see him working on this film. Um, and then so they, they shot the movie from August to November 1980. It came out July the 10th, 81. $7 million or $5 million budget ends up grossing 
$25,244,700, which is pretty good. That's $1981. $1981. It's funny, overseas, they changed Snake to Hyena in Italy, and they also changed uh, Snake to Cobra in Korea. So those are, the, those are his names. In, um, cobra. Cobra. Well, he's in, got a cobra tattoo. Yeah, so maybe that's why they're like, ah! <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it ends up, you know... I think setting a mark and it starts that trend of 80s movies that ends up turning out being you get a lot of that dark you know certainly Blade Runner comes out but that's yeah, our yeah. based off of Philip K. Dick but you have a lot of a whole wave of those post-apocalyptic oh sure but, but there was a board game yeah which I hear is pretty awful I can't find one I want to get you're, one yeah you're looking for it I hear it's bad the uh, novelization was great Term of Legacy. Well, you said it's not very hard to find if people want to go The novelization, if you want it, you can find it on yeah. Amazon. And we, we so can, you can get it for like eight bucks. It's so like awesome that. just to, we endorse these novelizations, how cool they, they are. They made Escape from L.A., a sequel in 1996. Um, Solid Snake and Metal Gear was inspired, a character in Metal, the game's Metal Gear. Yeah, the, the director. Was inspired by Snake Plissken. Like we said, there was an animated movie slated that never happened. Lawsuit with... Uh, Lupusan, and also like you know, as we love to talk about those crazy Italians and how they, you know, the idea <laughs> of the, the idea of the ripoff movie or the the mockbuster. Um, so there's some great uh, Italian esque movies, uh, Italian style Escape from New York movies, 1990s Bronx Warriors or 1990 Bronx Warriors, which was made in 1992, 1982. <laughs> the title is 1990 Bronx Warriors, and then 2019. After the fall of New York. I wonder where they shot those. If they actually came over to America like Fulci would do. And if they shot some of that like in the burned out South Bronx. I've actually. You, know? uh, you have that, don't you? The Bronx. Uh, I, I've actually never seen the Bronx one. I hear that's very much like an homage to both Warriors and Escape, Escape from New York. We should maybe think about doing it at some That'd point. That would be pretty sweet. Uh, 2019, the fall of New York is. Uh, that one is got a special place in my heart. I would not say it's great. But it's uh, if you like to watch those kinds of things. It's yeah. really worth watching. And those are probably your recommendations, too, if we recommend for this show. Well, I would recommend, if we're going to do recommendations, I would say watch Warriors. Yeah. And uh, and maybe uh, the fall of... The t- 2019, the fall of New York. Yeah. I'd probably maybe say... Or after the fall of New York. Say a, a movie like a RoboCop, because it's, it's just like it's that dark... It, yeah. it, it adds to the cynicism of the world, where it doesn't... To me, it doesn't seem like Blade Runner so much is in this world, but like... A, a RoboCop where nobody, the society doesn't care about anything. There's nobody really redeeming in it. I kind of get that feel. You know, I'd love to see more of the world. The more of the, you know, it'd be cool if they, if the comic book series, or they did that animated series. Yeah, or they did you know, like a, I have the comic book, the more recent comic book series, and I, I haven't read it, but it's just like it's Escape from New York. Yeah. Um, it'd be cool. Just, I mean, I, I don't think it's just an adaptation of the movie, but it's an Escape from New York comic. I mean, so, I could so see... So it's more... Obviously, it has more to do with New York. I, I could see AMC doing, like, a show about this, like a prequel of, like, you know, New York City falling apart and then the gas and all, all that shit leading up to it becoming a prison. That's, like, well, the I think end of that's kind of, like, the idea of that, like, that Neil Marshall movie, Doomsday, if I recall. It's, like, some kind of virus happens and they wall in, like, yeah. Scotland or something. And somebody... There's something... Pa- some... Pa- thing you know some still haven't seen that. something they have to i i, maybe should, I don't know we should, maybe we'll watch it together sometimes i haven't seen it since it first came out like i said i was so but i remember you liking put, it i was so kind of put off but you're put it. off because of it because it's so bob much like haskins or was it haskins yeah bob haskins. <laughs> he's in it so i mean there's definitely redeemable things about it i remember being more put off by the fact that it was just a ripoff of skip new york but i might really like it now yeah. now that i'm kind of separated from it a little bit yeah 
It's like that Snowpiercer. I hear that's like a post-apocalyptic kind of train. It's like, what the hell? I hear it's a good movie. And it's like, how can a yeah. post-apocalyptic well, Mad movie Max train? Mad would, Max would I mean, be a good... Road uh, Warrior, yeah. Would I mean, be a good... Uh, maybe that's what's happening in Australia, you know? <laughs> right? They're the same kind of a world. <laughs> you know, they've kind of uh, fallen apart. But yeah, definitely. I mean, um, uh, Sleepover Stars, I'd give this like four out of five or five out of five. I think it'd have to go like, you know? Yeah. Five, maybe five after five. You know, six out of five. You know, because the only it's, thing it could use is more boobs. Yeah, and it, and, and they got it pretty <laughs> for covered sleep, for sleepover. Yeah, they got it pretty covered with Adrian there. I mean, it, the, the, it's funny the shots when she's in it. Yeah, it's hilarious. That you just look, everyone just watching those things j- jump and jingle. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's you a goddamn carpenter. And, you know, you have a shot of like Ernest Borgnine, and Harry and Dean Stanton, and Carpent and and Kurt Russell on frame, and everyone's just looking at Adrian <laughs> Pogo's chest. You know? I was like, man, if you're going to envy Carpenter for anything. Yeah, just he's, he, he was married to Adrian Barbeau for many years. I had a kid with Adrian yeah. Barbeau. Lord have his, mercy. Who was in his, in his band, Cody. That's hilarious. So they must have some sort of relationship if, he, if they mothered a child together. Or, they, you never hear them. Yeah. She's always in like Carpenter documentaries that yeah. discuss them. I, it seems to me that they've I wonder if they how, parted how on good terms. Blood is it's like Linda Hamilton and James Cameron, you know, if, 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 or if the other girl, Bigelow and Cameron, you know. How you that, know, I love that. Jamie Lee Curtis is so was so tied into like the Carpenter thing. Well, I didn't know all so this long. stuff was. You know, she has a sizable role in this because even the stuff that's deleted, she has all yeah. that voiceover work, and it's it's like. I mean, obviously, there's Halloween, but she's in the fog. Yeah, she does the voiceover. You know, this. this stuff, and she, I'm sure she, you know, she's in other stuff. I wish you know. they would do something together. It would be interesting to get like yeah, a little. Unfortunately, you know, Pleasance isn't with us anymore. But to get some of those Carpenter esque, yeah, get like people together, do like a creep show again, and have like <laughs> yeah. you know, and an anthology. Sam Neil. Sam Neill, uh, uh, Tom Atkins, Kurt, Kurt Russell. Is it Peter Jason, who's in like every Carpenter movie po- after uh, uh, Fritz of Darkness. Yeah, get all those. That'd be great. All those freaking things. But yeah, I think it's like four out of four, four to five, five out of five. It's great. I mean, the only thing now is just that with age, it's just you start, you know, you start looking for things that are wrong with it. But it's just so, it's, it, and it flows too. It's only an hour and a half. It's dated, you know? but I think it holds up yeah. pretty darn well. Yeah. If the, the effects hold up. If anything, it's like Isaac Hayes. You know, it's like, yeah, it's just, <laughs> you, you know, know, it's like there's, there's stuff about it you can't avoid that it's so like late 70s, early 80s. <laughs> and the Yeah, I mean, they're using tapes, you know, or, yeah. or, you know, the American Bandstand is the song <laughs> at the end, you know, it's like, you know, but it's, but it's great because it has that cynical ending, yeah. which is amazing, which I, I've only seen Escape from New York, Escape from LA once, but I remember the Escape from LA ends the same way. They have it like ends with like, he's got a device off, like, that's going to turn off electricity Bring it back forever. to the Stone Age, and he does, like, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, <clears throat> you know, there's that, me. it's very telling that scene, he goes, you know, uh, he goes to talk to the president. He's like, "I just want a moment of your time." I know, and it's, and you can really tell he's he's judging that decision. Yeah, is he going to give it give the tape up to him, and then he can kind of tell that he's well. A lot of people died, <laughs> you know, uh, to get you. And out it's of just there. like kind of like Fresno Bob died. <laughs> you know, so the kind of standard answer. You know, I appreciate it. The sacrifice is greatly appreciated. Um, I'm going to be on TV in two minutes. Uh, yeah. yeah, and so. That's when Snake makes that decision. Yeah. Great end scene with him and uh, uh, Hulk. Oh, yeah, where they're like, you know, are you going to kill me now? I'm tired. Yeah, and he's like, <laughs> they, they, Plisky doesn't look at him. In the book, he says, did you see him? Meaning his son. He's like, I saw him, and he's he's doing okay. Like he, he he lies to him. Yeah, like, yeah, he tells him that he's, that like, I saw him, he's he's happier there than he would be anywhere else, or something like that. He basically lies to him. 
that's a more of a redeeming, like, admirable quality that goes to like you know snakes under down. You know, because like you said, snake goes back for you know uh, for Taylor, or yeah. even when that girl who, who played by his first wife, he tries to save her when she's pulled in by yeah, the Chud yeah. people. You could tell he does have a heart, which is yeah, kind of nice. Deep down, yeah, Snake's heart's there. Yeah, he's just, you know, so there's like those lines, and then he's like the outlaw Josie, Wales. and then he and then Hawk asks him. He says he's okay. He's, he's happier than he would be anywhere else, and. You know, you can tell Hawk is kind of like uh, Hawk is said there. It says something like, you know, like you can tell like years of worry, like just like, you know, like uh, disappear from his face. You could tell like that was like Hawk really needed to hear that. And then Hawk's like, you know, I was hoping we could work together. And then, then the, the dialogue from the movie starts back up. It's like, I got a job for you. And uh, it's called L.A. I, and now this makes me want to go back and watch Escape from L.A. Well, I mean, maybe we'll do it next year. Yeah. See, see how that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I remember. It I have a friend of mine, my buddy Eli. He he likes Escape from Escape from is like one of his favorite movies. He likes it even better than this one. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I I remember it having its flaws at the time. Oh yeah, it's really che- it's, it's severely dated. It gets now. even more tongue in cheek, and somehow you're right, it's like more dated than this yeah. one <laughs> it, because they're surfing, and then there's you know, C. Buscemi shows up, and they have the basketball. Con- they so, go even more, you know. Bruce Campbell's there. Say Bruce Campbell's shed. great. Yeah, I remember, only yeah. that one scene. It's all kind of crazy shit in there. So yeah, it's definitely worth checking out again. But but if anything, we've we've this has been an in- infomercial for uh, Mike McQuarrie's book. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the McQuarrie book. Boy, the Bant Phantom Books, 1981. Yeah, Escape from L.A., Escape from New York. Yeah, it's, um, it's, yeah, fun. Yeah. Love this movie. Glad we did it. Yeah. Starting off 2017 with a bang. Yeah, we're kicking in the door, waving the 4-4, so uh, it was really awesome. So uh, check us out. We're, you know, we're on iTunes. We're on all the other places. We're uh, on Facebook, our Facebook page. Yeah. Uh, Check us out on Twitter, guys. Come on. Yeah, Twitter. Sa- at Sat Some of you guys aren't following us on Twitter, and I don't like it. <laughs> He's getting mad. Uh, <laughs> it's getting so late in the morning, we're getting delirious. But yeah, check us out on Twitter. We're at Sat Sleepovers. We have our regular page. You can find a lot of extras there. Uh, people have a lot of stuff for this cast there, like the deleted opening and some other stuff, and maybe some music and some other extras. And then we have the Facebook page. We have our... Uh, Podcasts on the very pod, various podcast iTunes places. and whatnot. Check out Scored to Death, which is my book. You can follow it on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, this is especially relevant because we get accounts of this score from both Alan and Alan Howarth and Carpenter. So you can read a little bit about this score in that book. Yeah, Blake's Blake got Scored to Death. Um, that's his book. Um, let's see. I don't really have anything going on at the moment, uh, but you could find me. I'm, I'm around. You know. <laughs> If you're a Megan Kelly fan, she's got a new book out. I mentioned in that twice, uh, really. So check that out, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks because 2017 is coming up. And uh, believe it or not, we have a lot of great movies in store for you because uh, got a lot of 30 year anniversaries. <laughs> but anyway, but we have a lot of great stuff coming out, and uh, you know we're gonna have some fun. Gonna have me some fun. Gonna have me some fun. Long tall Sally, she's real sweet. She makes everything look guy needs. Later.